Welcome once again to Cinemaholics, where we talk about the biggest and best films coming to theaters and streaming online. From the San Francisco Bay Area, you know me, I'm John Agroni, film editor for The Young Folks. And from Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania, well, he's a pop culture writer for Cinema Blend. Mm-hmm. And uh, he doesn't come from Haddonfield, Illinois anymore. He moved. It's Will Ashton. Hey there. You can find more episodes of Cinemaholics, including our full archive on cinemaholics.com, including written reviews and other bonus content. We've got lots of stuff on there. If you'd like to write into the show, hit us up. we got some good emails lately. I don't have them on hand. Yeah. we got some really nice ones. Yeah, I was going to say, I'd like, uh, yeah. I'd like to read those at some point. Uh, I sent them to nice. you. I know, but like they're asking questions. and like, Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Like there were a couple of Bond related ones I wanted to talk about on the air because they were like actually actually asking us questions and I wanted to answer those. But ah, well, I, I'll have to say we got to we got to get to that eventually. Um, but sure. if you want to send us an email, we'll get to it. We promise. Cinemaholicspodcast at gmail is our email. That's how you hit us up, and that's in the show notes if you don't want to write it down. If you'd like to support our show, don't forget we're on Patreon. Patreon.com slash Cinemaholics. You could also just do a five star rating on Apple Podcasts. That's cool too. And we have Cinemaholics merch. If you want to buy some Cinemaholics stuff, just go to our website, cinemaholics.com, and you can get yourself a hoodie mug, t-shirt, shot glass, whatever you like. Links to all that and more is in the show notes. But we're here to talk about a bunch of other things. We're here to talk about a few movies. We have three movies to review, all very different from each other. Will, what are we talking about? Oh, boy. So we're talking about... Well, first, we're going to be talking about David Gordon Green's Halloween Kills, which is the sequel to the 2018 film Halloween. Happy Halloween. Happy there Halloween, you go. Happy Washington. Halloween to you too, John. We're Almost. Also going to, we're going to be talking about Ridley Scott's The Last Duel. Which Ridley Scott, I know him. He directed a bunch yeah. of movies that I like. He's directed a lot of movies, yeah. And he has yeah. uh, another one coming up. Uh, is it next month? Is it in November next or month? December? I yeah. think it's November, House of Gucci. If it's if it's not November, it might be like the first week of December. I'd have to double check. Yeah, I know it's coming up real soon because he shot another movie during the pandemic. So yeah, he doubled up this year, like yeah. he did the last time. He he doesn't make a movie for four years, but mm-hmm. then the last time he did two movies in the same year as well. I don't know what his deal is. Yeah, he just well, I mean, once he gets that that fire under his belly, I guess he just gets to work. Yeah, it's true. It's like yeah, hard worker. All right, what's the last thing? And then we got Todd Haynes' first documentary, The Velvet Underground, which is now streaming on Apple TV+. Velvet Underground, you probably never heard of it. Um, that is a reference to something that hipsters used to always say. Now they don't say it as often. Hmm. But hopefully that captures the mood of that conversation we'll be having later in the show. Or was it? That underground by our age? I feel like people were pretty well aware of like... Of Velvet uh, Underground? Yeah. Yeah, people know about Andy Warhol and Lou Reed, but I, I right. don't think a ton of people know about Velvet Underground. Like, if you go to like the most, like, like the average person, they're going to be like, "What?" Is that like I Pink feel Floyd? Like the Banana mm-hmm. Album is like such an iconic cover that, like, I, I see like that's like a poster and a bunch of things and stuff like that. And like, Heroin's such a famous song that I feel Heroin like, for sure. People know the yeah. songs, but not everybody knows the artists, unfortunately. But yeah, we we got to get to that in the review. Sure. Sure. Yeah. Yeah. So we'll get to that. We'll get, we only have a couple things in off topics that we want to mention. There's a movie you yeah. saw. I wanted to mention. Okay. So we're going to mention real quick something kind of major is going on in the movie industry. No, not DC fandom. We're not going to talk about that. Sorry. But I forgot about that. I know. <laughs> I almost did too. Is that but, why? Um, is that why the Batman trailer dropped? 
Yeah, which I have okay. not seen. I, have, I, I haven't seen it. As listeners know, I, I tend to kind of just avoid movie marketing as much as I can. And I just didn't watch it. I, I Maybe maybe eventually, I don't know, maybe well, it'll pop up in the theater. You did see Scream, the trailer for I Scream did. 5. I was, I was forced to watch it. It, would, it. it popped up. I couldn't stop it. I couldn't yes. press pause. It was at the theater. Uh, I also recently saw the trailer for Scream. We can talk about that. Uh, All I have to say about that is like, okay, it's another Scream movie. But if you were on Twitter and you follow a bunch of people who are film oriented, they they acted like this was the big trailer of the year. It was a whole there was a whole discourse around Scream trailer. I was like, what? Okay, it's nothing. It's just another Scream movie. Who cares? Move on. And apparently we all did because I haven't heard anything about it since that day. So, yeah. I don't know. It's it it's coming out January, so that's yeah. not a great sign. When I but saw it's radio the end. <laughs> yeah. Well, as soon as it was like January thirteenth, I was like, oh, okay. Yeah. But anyway, uh, yes, yeah, 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 yeah. I don't remember it was but, the thirteenth, but anyway, yeah, what yeah. we're actually talking about the IATSE. This is a big deal. So if you haven't heard of them, this is the International Alliance of Theatrical Stage Employees. It's a union. They have a lot of people in this union, over one hundred and fifty thousand people, and th- this is. When you say theatrical stage employees, we're talking about craftspersons. We're talking about artisans. We're talking about like all of the technical people within the entertainment industry. This includes, as you know, it sort of makes it sound like it's uh, only like live theater, like stage plays and stage productions, but it's not just that. It's also the movie industry in Hollywood and uh, television as well. So this is a big strike. We're talking about 150,000 people. I want people to understand this, by the way. So, like, they're demanding basically uh, a slew of things that are going to hopefully make their lives a lot better, uh, for sure. That's like the root of this strike. But 150,000 from from like one labor union is a huge deal because I was I was double checking this, but will the Writers Guild strike, the WGA strike? Remember that from yes. 2007. Of course. It happened late 2007. I think it was like November. It was only like a few months, which actually we shouldn't say only because like that is a long time for a strike, like November to February, you know, yes. that's 12,000 people, 12,000 people in that union and them striking ruined television for like a, a long time. Like that right. had repercussions in the industry that I think arguably are still felt today. Like very popular shows like Scrubs, like Heroes, like so many, like NBC in particular. But these shows went off the rails because the writers did not show up to work. And so I think Hollywood rightfully is looking at this strike and being like, all right, we got to figure this out. The big news is that today they're in the midst of settling this and there's a deal that will avert the strike. But it's not 100% final, so we don't we can't say anything definitive about it yet. But yeah, you want you, you I know you wanted to bring this up, and maybe you have an opinion on this. Like maybe you want to, what, what do you want to tell the listeners? Well, for well, I mean, yeah, I, I think it's such a big deal because, um, like, it, this strike doesn't come out of nowhere. It's clearly coming from decades uh, upon decades of, um, you know, just grueling intensive work hours for crew members and you know like this is threatening to be the first strike they've ever had in the organization in 100 plus years so um like this is this is not a decision they're making lightly and it's clear that like you know if you look at their conditions they're really asking for just pretty basic things and if hollywood is going to drag their feet and not give it to them then i mean i think that speaks worse to them than it whatever to the the union itself but 
I mean, yeah, I, I, I am very curious. I mean, obviously, as a movie fan, I'm, I'm paying attention to this and trying to figure out what's going to happen if it does go forward with the strike. Like you said, it's not. It'll be even more disaster than than the writer strike because like things are just not going to be in production. Like you just can't, you know, make a movie without a crew. So, uh, you know, a lot of shows, a lot of movies, a lot of other things are going to be delayed. Uh, you know, and we're also talking about making stuff during a pandemic. So this is already a pretty hectic time to be making things in general. So um, I don't know if that means like more documentaries and animated films moving forward or what's going to happen. But um, yeah, it's it's something that I think if you're a film fan, you should definitely be paying attention to right now. Definitely pay attention because we're already in a, a status right now where consumer media is like shifting ever more. You know, throughout this entire situation, I've been thinking about, wow, you know, like TikTok and YouTube, you know, those are the two big platforms where people are just making stuff on their own. They, they don't they don't need the gatekeepers of Hollywood. They don't need these big apparatus, you know, organizations to produce art. Bo Burnham, he had, you know, he did his thing with Netflix, right? And he was able to basically do the entire thing reportedly by himself. He says he did it on his own. He did it you know, during the pandemic put up inside. And that, to me, reflects the future of consumer media, the ability of people to just create things on demand. And I know even amidst all that, there's a lot of chatter about people right now, around a lot of people right now, particularly like more lefty kind of people uh, online and on YouTube who say, you know, how do we, how do we start making like YouTube a, li a little bit more democratic for people, for film or video editors, you know, like editing videos on YouTube is a huge industry these days. Like if you wanted to be a YouTube yeah. like film essay person, if you want to do anything on YouTube in general, there is a whole industry now of people whose full-time jobs is to freelance video edit. And they don't, you know, like I, I've heard all kinds of things, like people like across political aisles, across interests, like they don't care. They, they will edit your video. They will do what they want to do, you know, to get paid. And like that to me is like a whole swelling wave of just changes that are on the horizon. So it's almost kind of quaint, you know, for the IATSE to be coming in and just being like, they're asking for the bare minimum here. I mean, they're asking for an hour, basically just increasing their pay. They want more money. They're not being paid enough, especially like these people work hard. These people work so incredibly hard, you know, not right. to, it's not a competition with other people who of course work hard in other yeah. industries, but yeah. Well, I mean, this isn't the only uh, union that's been threatening to strike or having to strike at the moment, obviously. The, yeah, the, the screen girl too, right? Yeah, well, I think so, yeah. But I mean, I was just talking like probably like John Deere right now, I think is the miss of a strike. Um, the Bisco, like I said, is okay. here in striking. But, <laughs> time, for, yeah. time for John's hot take. Um, no. Most strikes do not work. And most strikes, I'm very pro-strike, okay? I think strikes are great, but I think a lot of people do them stupidly. And I think okay. that particularly like some of the, uh, I don't know about John Deere specifically, but there are just some like general, hey, just do this strike. Don't participate in the economy for like a day. That was supposed to happen like a few days ago. Like dumb stuff like that that doesn't work. And it's to me, it's symptomatic of the fact that we just don't have unions in this country. And I like we don't have as strong unions as we used to. And I, I will just say that I, this is the kind of strike that I get behind, where there's a lot of organizing behind it. There's a real apparatus behind it. And people are actually hearing right. about this because, like, you know, a John Deere strike and a Bisco strike, that's one thing. But the IATSE, it's a lot of people and it affects the entire world. Like, Hollywood shutting down affects 
a lot of industries. It affects a lot of people. So to mm-hmm. me, that the attention really needs to be on this because if you actually do want to see a little bit of you know economic justice, if you will, uh, toward you know people who deserve it, then I think yeah, keep your eyes on that because I think it's going to be very indicative of the future and. Especially when you weigh oh, yeah. against, like I said before, the changes in tech and like all this stuff mm-hmm. that's happening already. Yeah, I mean, there's an undeniable ripple effect that can happen if they go on strike and we don't have, you know, like if if they if they don't make movies for six months or whatever. Especially now, like when we talk about like the theater business being fairly tentative as it is, but um, at the same time, yeah, I mean, I just think the pandemic was a big wake up call. I think that's the main reason we're seeing all these strikes and you know people yeah. asking for a more livable work environments and uh i i you know like i said i definitely think the strike comes with merit like i don't think they're doing this haphazardly not liberal you're not saying like not liberal like politically liberal work environments just to be clear i don't want somebody to hear that and be like all right you know like pc police or anything like that sure i just yeah i mean i just think i think what they are asking for is pretty fair and humane and um exactly Right, they're, they're yeah, asking for think, fair work environments. Like, just any like reasonable human being would look at this and be like, "Yeah, yeah that's that's fair. Like, right. that's what you should be getting based on the, the the what you're doing and how important it is." Right, and I am wondering if this is going to, even if there isn't a strike that happens with the IATSE, I'm wondering with like, um, you know, visual effects artists or animators stuff like that. They also have very really growing. They don't have their own union. Right. Visual effects artists don't have their own union, and it's terrible do they, because. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Do you think they will though? After this, that would be amazing, but I don't see yeah. that happen. I think that's very unlikely. Um, I'm sad to say, but man, if anybody need like, what visual artists go through, visual effects artists in this, and you know, people who do like computer generated effects for movies, they just get so belittled. They get so taken advantage of and raped through the coals. It's just so sad. Well, and especially I hate nowadays, even talking about yeah. it. It's so depressing. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, well, I mean, you see like, especially with big blockbusters now, like they're sort of just like, oh, you know, we can animate this or whatever. Yeah. The Sonic and the they, Hedgehog thing. Uh, Well, I, I mean, I was thinking more like the Marvel thing where like. Oh, yeah, that's um, Like they'll just like, you know, outright just be like, oh, we'll just pass it over to the animators and like things that like very simple things that don't really need to be CG'd. Just get CG'd because it's more in their view, more cost effective because they can overwork visual effects artists and you know save some money elsewhere and you know that's yeah i mean i'm not pointing the the blame exclusively at marvel like other studios do similar things but i mean it's just it's becoming clearly a big issue and like i said i wonder if this will inspire some unionizing if it can unionize i don't exactly know yeah the the thing i was thinking of specifically was when like they basically got that their visual effects teams to work like just extremely long hours with the Sonic the Hedgehog movie of having to redesign the whole thing and delay it, but try to release the movie not that long from when they originally sent out that trailer and people were like, this looks terrible. And then they put, they they really like put people through it to get that movie out there. And I have to assume that a lot of the box office success of that movie was successful uh, in its own way. Um, did not really I, I imagine it didn't translate to all the people who put all that hard work in fairly yeah. that's my assumption or, i, don't know that for I sure, mean but. yeah or even like something like cats where it's just like oh, they like clearly like rushed that in terms of post-production like they made this 
absurd Christmas release date, even though like it only finished filming like a few months before, you know, like pushed it to like basically the very last minute to do it. You know, they, you know, did as best they could, but obviously, you know, it was entirely rushed and, you know, the director didn't exactly know what he wanted. And then that studio basically went bankrupt because they couldn't, you know, fund themselves and then they became the laughing stock. And it's just, you know, yeah. stuff like that's just unfortunately kind of becoming a reality for, for that industry and it sucks. Release the butthole cut. And uh, didn't it come out like there, there's like footage of or like pictures of the butthole cut, I think if there was and I completely missed that and I'm surprised I did. Mm. I feel like that should have been front page news on every newspaper yeah. in America and Canada. Right. But yeah, that's all I had to say about IATSE. I will probably have to reconvene when there's more to say. Yeah, I mean, I just really kind of wanted to put like the breadcrumbs here because I just think it's something that people like especially people who listen to our show should be following and keeping an interest on because it's going to if it does go forward uh, as they are threatening it, it is going to be a major shift in hollywood and it might even just be a major shift because they're just threatening a strike i mean even if nothing goes forward with it the fact that they stood up and uh you know threatened a strike is going it could have major ramifications as well so no matter what happens, it's worth following in the next few days or months or however long it goes out. Yeah, good good to be aware of the situation. If you are not already, yeah, definitely read up on it. And Will, I just hope you don't go on strike. Because if you went on strike, and if I went on strike too, whoa, we're in trouble. Yeah, <laughs> no podcast. podcast. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that would be funny, though, if you were just like, I'm going on strike. And I'd be like, you know what? Me too. I Yeah. This is unfair. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, yeah. Who's off to hold the right. bag? Yeah. Well, you saw a movie uh, this past week. It premiered at Cannes earlier this year, and the reviews have been good. And I've been wanting to watch it. It's called Bergman Island. It's on my radar. I'd, I'd like to see it. It's a romantic drama, as you described it to me. It's uh, a new film from Mia Hansen Louvre, which we were talking about this off the air. I had never seen one of her movies. She's been making movies for quite a mm-hmm. minute, you know, quite a while since 2007, and. This is her latest, and you seemed to really like it. It has Vicky Creeps, Tim Roth, Mia Wazakowska. What's going on with this Bergman Island movie? Why do you like it so much? Yeah, I mean, I had heard all the good reviews coming out of Cannes, and I was, uh, you know, I, I wasn't super familiar like you were of the filmmaker, and I only knew the the stars and like the general concept, and I went in just being like, you know, hey, I'll check it out. You know, seems like it's at least pretty good, and. uh yeah, I was really quite taken by it. I don't think, I mean, especially if you have seen quite a few Bergman films, I don't think it's doing anything that's totally revolutionary in terms of its plotting. It, it, it has a kind of uh, story within a story plotting that we've seen in other films. But I think what really stood out to me and what I found really appealing and moving about the film is uh, the the natural soralistic, the naturalistic, I mean to say, uh, qualities that Mia Hansen Louvre brings to it, but at the same time, the fact that she's able to make the character seem so fleshed out and organically expansive and all that and in a way that I, I found uh, pretty genuine and pretty engaging in a uh, low yet high stakes sort of way. Um, yeah, just seeing Vicky Kripes and Tim Roth having their own little squabble and then seeing this lovely little interlude with uh, my Wykowski and um, her own love interest. I forget the guy, the actor's name, but it's just, uh, you know, it's just really touching good stuff. I, I think it's the type of film that you just, 
I want people to experience it. I don't know if I can really put uh, proper justice into why I think this movie is so so transfixing, but it was just uh, a very absorbing, sweet, and ultimately also bittersweet film that uh, I don't know if it'll be in my top 10 for the year, but I I'd certainly imagine it'll be in my top 20 or top 30 because it it's quite a good film, and I hope it gets a uh, wider audience. So that's my, my very loose rambling thoughts on the film. That's awesome to hear. I'll for sure be watching it. And you know, Will, it, it's interesting because the movie's called Bergman Island, right? Which is a reference to Ingmar Bergman, a, you know, an iconic film director. We have not talked about that much on this show, right? Like, I, uh, I don't think yeah. we've talked about any Bergman film on Extra Milestone, the film anniversary podcast. Mm -hmm. And... I'll tell you, I, uh, Ingmar Bergman is not a, a filmmaker who I've seen most of his work. Swedish director, you know, he he worked for a long time, made a lot of films. Uh, I don't yes. even know how many films he made. I have to imagine it's like dozens and dozens, but I've only seen a handful. You know, if I was going to like, I would love nothing more than to do a whole year of just going through Bergman's filmography, because that would probably be fascinating. He's considered one of the all-time great directors. Do you have like a like Bergman sort of connection? Like, are there any films from him that you really like, or how how did that sort of paint you watching this movie? Because this movie takes place right on. Uh, I, yeah. I, I, as far as I understand, it t it takes place on like the island where Ingmar Bergman lived and worked and all this stuff. Yeah, I mean, I I don't think you need to have a firm familiarity with Bergman to. Uh, you know, appreciate the film in full. I think you can get a lot out of it just seeing the film by itself. I mean, there are at least like a handful of shots. Like I said, my very limited knowledge of Ingmar Bergman that I was able to catch is a lot of uh, callbacks to like uh, scenes from marriage. Obviously, they call out that one a lot. And um, uh, Fanny which and got its own kind of remake. Cries and Whispers. Yeah, with the uh, the HBO thing. Oscar Isaac, um, Jessica Chastain heard it's okay. Yeah, I mean, that's what I figured. I thought it was just going to be like fine. Like, it's, you know, you're trying to remake Bergman. It's just going to be, it's probably going to be a yeah. mediocre attempt. But hey, um, you know what? I've heard it's, it might be better than mediocre, but just not amazing. Yeah, I just, there I mean, go. just pales in comparison, I guess. There to, you go. Uh, yeah, yeah. What Bergman did. Um, but yeah, I mean, I think really it, it's just the film itself that I really appreciate. I think obviously you'll get more out of it if you know and appreciate. Bergman as a person and filmmaker, but um, I think, yeah, the material itself, it's more about like, uh, you know, just the general things like uh, in terms of like how people incorporate their own personal lives into their art, where they find inspiration, how the inspiration moves them, how they can live within their art and use that to process their emotions about given things and stuff like that. All material that is like, you know, not necessarily new, but I think it's very human and meaningful. And I, and like I said, I don't, know enough about uh me and mia hansen lou's uh personal life to know how much of this relates to her own you know her own reality or whatever but um i i do think it feels very tender and lived in and sincere in a way that i found very engaging and affecting so i definitely think you know, no matter what familiarity you have with either filmmakers or uh anyone involved with the film i think it's definitely one that is worth seeing all right well that's bergman island it is, I believe, playing right now, at least in limited release. It's like, in, I think it's in between limited and wide. Like, I don't think it's in a lot of 
meters. Yeah. But you might be able to catch it if you have like an art house there yeah. nearby. Yeah, I mean, I was lucky enough that there was a art house here not too far away from me that uh, decided to play it. But um, I believe it's going to be on VOD fairly soon. If you do have a chance to check it out in the next week or so and and uh, you have uh, similar similarly high thoughts on the film, maybe we can do a bonus, but I won't promise it at this time, obviously. Yeah, and for our listeners in the UK and Ireland, you can, I believe, watch it on Mubi because Mubi, the streaming service, acquired the rights to it for uh, European distribution. Not in all European countries. I think just the UK and Ireland, if I'm not mistaken. But Mubi, M-U-B-I, that's the streaming service where they basically have like 30 films uh, on their service and like there's a new film every day and one that gets taken off. So like when a new film comes on, it's there for 30 days. One of my favorite streaming services. Uh, it's fantastic. Um, I don't use it enough, to be honest. I feel like I should be watching a movie on there every day, like the service demands, but I don't, unfortunately. But yeah, you might be able to check it out there if you are overseas. So yeah, that's that film. Uh, I wish I could have seen I tried to see it as well, so we could have had a whole review of it, but we couldn't get to it. But yeah. for now, let's get into our main review of the movie, or the movie, the main review of the podcast. There you go. Cinemaholics yeah. is not a movie. We, we might do a Cinemaholics movie someday. It yeah, we'll get a Kickstarter. Yeah. Um, get uh, all of our favorites back for cameos. and John and Will take Manhattan. There you go. Yeah, everybody's invited. Maverick will be there. Corey Woodruff, Matt Serafini, Julia Tatey, mm-hmm. the, the whole gang. It works, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know why it's like a Muppets style thing, but I feel, I feel like that fits. You know, we got to get the gang back yeah. together. Um, is it anyway. is it gonna be like that or is it like you ever see the mystery science theater 3000 movie oh yes where it's just like an, a, a like a feature length riff that's just like an episode it's just like we have like a little bit at the beginning and then we just do like a review of like whatever like the actual movie or whatever it has to be a really good review yeah. you, we got to pick the right movie it can't just be yeah. you know right like grown-ups too it's gotta be something i don't know that's a conversation for another day i think but let's uh, uh, finally talk about the big movie of the week. This is the big box office winner of this past weekend. Halloween Kills. So Halloween Kills, it is the latest movie from David Gordon Green. I like David Gordon Green. I think his filmography is very hit or miss. However, I got to give what? the guy credit, okay? Yeah. This guy made Pineapple Express. Pineapple Express. He did? He did. That is, to me, one of my favorite films from my high school college years. I mean, like, I watched Pineapple Express with my buds. I watched it in theaters. I saw that movie with my buds dozens of times. We loved it. We could quote it for the longest time. David Gordon Green, Danny McBride, really great duo. You know, they've been doing these Halloween movies since 2018 as well. But man, Pineapple Express, that's like, he reached a high with that movie, if you know what I mean, a high, because it's about marijuana. Yeah. His other but, movies I mean, have not been as good, though. Oh, I don't know, because like, I was going to bring up, like, his filmography is just all over it's the kind place. of fascinating. It's so weird. Prince Avalanche, of, like, and then our brand right. is Crisis. Well, yeah, because, like, yeah. <laughs> Stronger, before, which I actually like Stronger. Yeah, Stronger is good. Um, before Pineapple Express, he made a number of acclaimed indies. Uh, unfortunately, I've only seen one of them, Snow Angels, but 
Hey, uh, yeah, I that's know, the only one I saw. I didn't see um, uh, the other one's George Washington and uh, George Washington's a really famous. That, that's like a pretty monumental indie film from 2000. Big time. Uh, yeah. It's in the Criterion Collection. All that. There's also all the real girls, which is where I believe he met uh, Danny McBride. I think Danny McBride also might have had a hand in that in terms of writing it. Oh, but I didn't then, know yeah. that. I know. Well, Zoe Deschanel is in that with uh, Patricia Clarkson. I want to say, yeah, I haven't seen yeah. it. But uh, yeah, then there's Undertow, which I'm not as familiar with. But then yeah, like there's Final Books. Oh, he did Undertow. That's a Jamie Bell movie. I didn't know that. With uh, yeah, yeah, Josh Lucas. Okay, I'm not as familiar with this one, but um, yes, this is the one with Josh Lucas. Kind of like Jamie a Bell. thriller, I think. Yeah. Man, wow. I didn't. Well, know I mean, that. the okay. thorough line here is that he makes a lot of like character pieces, be it yes. whatever genre. He like makes films that are very much either like rustically lived in or like have like characters kind of down bad mm-hmm. and trying to you know get out of their predicament or just kind of like in the thick of it or what with whatever they're doing and trying to get in yeah. their out of their situations but yeah going off of uh, pineapple express there was this kind of clunker period where he did like your highness and the sitter and uh, neither of those were particularly well liked uh your highness yeah. definitely has its fans but the sitter is, is definitely uh i've seen each uh, of those only once and like that's right. it that's all i needed that's just but yeah, uh, yeah. critically kind of yeah came around after that yeah yeah yeah. i mean yeah prince avalanche was a bit of a comeback yeah, however I like, prince avalanche. I like joe a lot i've always had a soft spot for snow angels i mean he 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 does and i think it's because i have a soft spot for sam rockwell more than anything but yeah. like he just excels i think he he gets he does like a very sundancey kind of thing but mm-hmm. he goes in between, you know, he does like Sundancey stuff and then he does these like stoner comedies. And then now he's like in this like franchise. It's it's kind of odd. Like he he takes right. on Halloween in 2018. And this is obviously like his his stamp on it is let's pretend none of the other Halloween movies ever happened. Forget them. Except for the first one. Except for obviously. the first one. The only one. And we had gotten a movie like that before where I think I forget it was like HCO or something where it was like, oh yeah, only Halloween one and two. Like you yeah. can forget the other ones. You can forget Curse of Michael Myers and Resurrection Return, all that stuff. But it at least maintained the whole like, well Laurie Strode is Michael Myers' sister. David mm-hmm. Gordon Green, Danny McBride and a couple other screenwriters they're like, well, let's just forget that. Like, we don't need. Who cares? Laurie Strode. She doesn't need to be a sister. Let's just let's just go back to basics. The yeah. first Halloween movie. Michael Myers, as a young boy, trick or treating, murders his sister, and then he gets put into a mental institution, breaks out, and then wreaks havoc in 1978. And then Halloween 2018 picks up decades later. And he comes back. And Laurie Strode, played by Jamie Lee Curtis, she reprises her role. None of the complicated stuff that happens after the first Halloween. She's just Laurie Strode. She was one of the babysitters. Who She was the final girl. One of the prototypical final girls in slasher film. Halloween was not the first slasher film, but it was arguably the first mainstream one. It was the one that really popularized slasher films, I think. Well, and, it made uh, it along like with a Texas Chainsaw. Yeah. It made slasher as a genre, like kind of a household name, sort of. Or like it, 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 it validated it. Yes, mm-hmm. validated. That's a good way of putting it because Big time. it brought it to the suburbs and it kind of made like something like like the idea that these killers could just be in your backyard and attack you while you're seemingly doing uh, nothing of great consequence. And yep. uh, on a, on days such as Halloween, and uh, that is the 
the uh the, the lasting power of that first film is that yes is very simple but very direct and very creepy because it knows what it needs to do gets in and out very effectively in the very john carpenter way and yep. i would say no other film in the franchise has really topped it in that respect it, it's it's kind of uh it's what to be expected, I guess, with a sequel to yeah. such a great film. But yeah, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's a hor- for me. It's a horror masterpiece. I mean, it's just a masterpiece of suspense more than anything. It's not a gore fest. There's not that much violence in it. Right. Know, there's not that many kills in it. I don't remember that many kills from the first Halloween. I've seen the first Halloween many, many times. Right. And because it's just it, it it's just so well crafted. I mean, like every detail of it, they made it for a super low budget, even yeah. for the time. And I think the thing to remember about that movie, and I think the reason that David Gordon Green and his screenwriters were like, let's just get rid of the like Halloween 2 stuff. I think the reason they did that was because there was something to say about the randomness of Michael Myers in that first movie when you didn't have the familial sort of bond between Michael Myers and Laurie Strode. His movie sort of posits like, it was just random. He just he just went after these teens because he wanted to kill them. And that speaks more. That's scarier to me than Michael Myers is sort of being like, well, I killed one sister. I have to kill the other. I was like, OK, yeah. well, he is evil incarnate. Like he is just plain evil as a person. Mm. And uh, Dr. Loomis tried to warn everybody. He's just like, this man is evil. Don't give sympathy to him. Just kill him by any means possible. Just kill him. And nobody listens, or if they do listen, they can't beat Michael Myers. So, yeah. uh, you know, yeah, it's yeah, it's, uh, yeah. There, it's there's something, and it, it's like you said. I mean, this is 1978, the first Halloween. This is really when we're coming into the sort of rise of serial killers in the news, and the way that the yes. media during that time was like, you know, really hyping up these high-profile murders and serial killings this is around the time when serial kill like serial killer was coined you know mm-hmm. you know mind hunter all of that that's all like late 70s and the 80s zodiac killer like all these things so well, yeah it's yeah it's feeding off the idea of like that started i guess the 50s or 60s where it's like well if you're in the suburbs you're safe like you, you're you're out of the city you're out of the country like you know you're you're in the safe part of the country and that a movie like that like you said kind of going off mm-hmm. of the serial killer thing is just like it feeds into the you're idea of like, safe. yeah, you're not White safe flight anymore. flight will right. come back to haunt you, right? And uh, oftentimes what, what leads to the character's demise in the first film is, is the, the false idea that they think they're safe and that nothing, something like that couldn't happen. Like their doors are unlocked and, uh, you know, all this different stuff that, that kind of leads to their death is because yeah. they have this sort of placid view of what they think is an idyllic sense of safety that is clearly not there. And these movies play with your sense of security of like, well, you know, the character walked over to the garage. That's where I thought that's where I thought Michael Myers was going to kill him. But he doesn't. And then they walked out and they're in their car. They're safe. And that's when Michael Myers comes in and kills them. Like, that's the whole point. And it's so effective in getting that point across. And I think we could totally agree then that, yeah, the following Halloween movies, they seem to sort of just assume that what's scary about michael myers is that he just kills people and it's just a lot of killing and we've never got a movie as good as the first halloween we just haven't i think like when rob zombie took over in 2007 and i always like mentioning hey hey, the first halloween from rob zombie which gave us a more detailed origin story of michael myers which i hate i hate the concept of that it's like uh, like why would you need you don't need to do that they tried to christopher nolan batman begins 
Michael but Myers. I, that's stupid. I actually kind of <laughs> I like the idea of like is it a nature versus nurture thing with Michael Myers? I don't know if we necessarily need that story like you mentioned, but I appreciate that that movie, Rob Zombie with his his two Halloween movies pretty much when I was like, I'm not doing Carpenter's thing. I'm doing my own thing with the exception of, I guess, the second half of the first film. But when it tries to do a remake of the Carpenter film, like clearly the second Halloween film went out of its way to be like, I'm not just doing Halloween 2 again. I'm doing my own thing with this. Yes, and, the second uh, one I is better, yeah. I thought. Right. Right, but I, I think yeah, yeah, I don't know. I I want to revisit those films out of curiosity, but um, they're tough watches. They're they're pretty yeah. brutal, and I I think like the first one especially, you know, like the violence and everything. Well, I, I wanted to say real quick, by the way, the first Halloween that Rob Zombie did, that was the movie that was playing the first time I worked in a movie theater. My first day on the job, okay. that first weekend, we were playing at Halloween. That was a big movie, hmm. and. Makes me a little nostalgic inside. It was fitting, sure. considering my connection to the Halloween movies. I've always yeah. felt really connected to them. Yeah, I mean, there is something for for as much as we've been talking up. They're like, oh, like they they remind you that your environment isn't safe and that you're always in danger and all this stuff. There is something kind of comforting about Halloween movies at the same time. Almost, uh, yeah, almost, yeah. I guess technically, ironically, because yeah, they they just they've been around for pretty much four or five decades now and you know they kind of follow a, a similar template they they don't always uh follow that same template to a t but they there's a general concept of Mike myers is out he wants to kill people he's going to kill a bunch of people and Lori has to stop or and somebody lean related, back in our like seats Lori. it's like we see an old friend it's like hey michael how you doing man yeah. you've been how you been right and it just kills a bunch of people ah you mm-hmm. suck ah. oh mike why you gotta bust everybody's chops yeah yeah that mask that uh what was it the star trek uh kirk mask that they did yeah it's a william shatner so creepy mask. yeah yeah so creepy anyway so halloween 2018 that movie came out in 2018 and like we already mentioned and so the whole thing with that it was it was kind of like david gordon green doing his thing where he's like we're gonna make a character study out of this it's gonna be about laurie Strode. it's gonna be about like all right well let's resolve that first movie because Michael Myers isn't dead and she has been spending like all these years preparing. And so we're going to have to spoil the first movie. Sorry. I mean, you kind of had to know that you're going to listen to a review of the sequel, but the way that movie ends is that she gets wounded. She gets stabbed, uh, but she survives and Michael Myers gets trapped in the burning compound, her burning house area. And that's it. It's assumed that he's going to die. And I think along the way, though, they were like, Haha, no, it's not over. We're going to have two more of these movies. It's a trilogy that David Gordon Green is doing with Danny McBride and the, the other screenwriters. But and I'm sorry, I keep forgetting who they are. And I know Jason yeah. Blum produced these as well. But uh, so the setup is that we have Halloween 2018. Halloween kills this movie. And there's going to be another one. Halloween ends. Yes. And to me, on the one hand, I'm sort of like, okay, well, Michael Myers is such an iconic thing. He's such a larger-than-life like movie monster. You know, he's one of the more postmodern movie monsters. You know, and so I think you know what, if you're going to do a thing about finally bringing resolution and catharsis to the Halloween franchise, I understand doing it in three movies. If anything, I felt like the 2018 movie. I didn't love it. I, I kind of was like. I really was like, take it or leave it. I barely remember it. And I was sort of like, ah, you know, it's Michael Myers. Like you're never going to get rid of him. And so I, d- I never believed he was really gone. 
But I could believe that he's really gone if you do it over the course of three movies. And so that makes this movie sort of feel like a stepping stone to what's going to happen in the third. Yeah, middle chapter. But yeah, middle chapter is a good way to put it. Uh, what what did you think of this movie, though? I mean, I, I've already sort of given my thoughts. I, I, I'll, I'll say out of the onset, I think I'm in the minority. I don't hate this movie. I, I, I think a lot of people have been bringing out their pitchforks. And I, I use that deliberately. Uh, for this movie, they hate it. Uh, people are like, this sucks. I hate it. I don't like this, whatever. I liked the last one. I'm sort of like, I like this one a little bit better. I, I still think it doesn't hold a candle to the first Halloween. No one, nothing ever does. But I actually kind of found myself enjoying this one a little bit more, sort of like settling in its, you know, mediocrities a little bit and not really caring about its flaws as much. But what do you think? Um, I don't hate it either. I, um, I had kind of mixed feelings about the 2018 film. Um, I think you were more negative than I was ultimately, but my stance on that film, especially upon rewatch is basically that as we were alluding before, I don't think you're ever going to really fully top the, uh, John Carpenter film, even if you have them involved as they do with this film, at least from a, uh, score standpoint. But, um, I, I do think that that movie takes an interesting concept as far as like the generational trauma of um, Laurie and, and everyone else in Haddonfield. And it, it makes Michael Meyer effectively pretty brutal again. And I think that it shakes off the, um, the silliness of the later Howie movies outside of the zombie uh, remake and that sequel. I think it acknowledges that like Michael just needs to be this terrifying killing machine who will kill anyone and seemingly, uh, anything at, at any point. And I, I think that that movie has its flaws and uh, it doesn't really fully come together. But I think by Halloween sequel standards, it, it proves to be a, you know, decent film, I guess, by and large. I, I, I think both times I've watched it, I've, I've had my issues, especially with the sort of comedic side characters that are introduced at periods in the film. But um, I think, yeah, I think that one's fine. And this one, it's the type of film I think I admire the ambition of it as far as like we're not just going to do Halloween 2 again as far as like the original Halloween 2 where it's just Laurie in the hospital and Michael Myers is going to come in there and try to kill her while she while she is uh, left idle. But at the same time, I think because this movie tries to, like you said, explore this sort of like mob mentality, focus on the lingering trauma of Haddonfield as a town and how they've like been psychologically damaged by Michael Myers attack uh, decades ago. I, I think those ideas are interesting and obviously meant to be timely, but I think in terms of execution, I don't find this film to be particularly well told or well paced. Um, I think the structure of it, it leaves a lot to be desired in terms of being fairly shapeless. I think the movie has way too many characters. Uh, there's like 35 characters in this movie. And I'm just like, what is this Magnolia? Like, why is there so many characters in this? It's a big, it's a slash. yeah, yeah. <laughs> Uh, is they this have like, this you know, many characters and they just want, just want to kill them off. <laughs> well, that's what I mean, right? So it's like you don't really get invested in these other characters because you're just like they're lambs to the slaughter. Like they're just going to be killed pretty much. And then you're left like, you know, after introducing in an effective way uh, Lori and her daughter and her granddaughter in the previous film, they're mostly kind of pushed aside in this, uh, especially Lori, who's, you know, left in a hospital bed for most of her screen time, just wondering what Can Michael I say Myers I like that? I okay. liked people are saying like, ah, oh, we barely get Jamie Lee Curtis. And I'm like, I get that. But that was the last movie. Like, it would just be that again. 
And I, I don't know, because because we didn't really mention this, but this movie extends the long night from the last movie. It's still the same day. So it is like, yeah, like you already mentioned this, but it's like Halloween 2 in that sense. Like we don't, it's not a year later, it's nothing like that. This movie even starts with, uh, well, after like a, a couple of minutes, it goes back in time. It takes us back to 1978, probably my favorite part of the whole movie, when it just decides to be in oh, 1978 for a few minutes. I and wildly disagree with that. You didn't like that part of the movie? No, I thought that part was like embarrassing. I thought that part of the movie I wish was more of the movie, like more of a sort of like going back and forth in time and like maybe adding context to what's going on with Michael and like what, what he's doing. I thought it was kind of a missed opportunity. In fact, I, I liked it. I liked how they brought the sort of, it felt like we were in the seventies again. You, you, did you not like the characters? No, I, I mean, I, I like the cameo. I won't give it away, but yes, there's, good. there's a fun cameo. I don't know why he's in the movie, but I know, I know. Uh, I, I, I like the question is, <laughs> yeah, whatever. I, I, you know, still playing cops for whatever reason, but yeah. you know, neither here nor there. Um, there are, I mean, so there are two things in terms of like the, the 5 billion characters that are introduced in this movie. There are two angles here that I kind of wish they explored and they just kind of focus on one or the either. One is, uh, Anthony Michael Hall, who they introduce as a new, like Tommy Doyle, who is, uh, you know, from the first film, he obviously carries a lot of baggage and, uh, you know, people keep wondering, like, why isn't Tommy Doyle in these movies more and all that? And they finally bring him back. And I I like that we get character actor mode Anthony Michael Hall in this. And I think he I don't know, I, I've heard some kind of mixed feelings about his performance, but I actually thought he was pretty good in this. I actually thought he was, you know, I, I don't think he's given a lot to do in terms of his character, but I think he makes the most of it in terms of presence and all that and the other one um i was kind of intrigued by was the uh, the gay couple that lives in the myers house now i kind of like they are like living this sort of weird tranquil sort of life outside of uh the looming threat that is michael myers and i kind of yeah. like they're just like you know just kind of doing their thing watching horror movies scaring kids and i was just like yeah i don't know i mean i don't think that's a fully fleshed idea either but i think that's kind of cute and i think that there's something kind of uh, appealing about that it's relatable uh, but- Sure. I feel like I would be, you know, that's what I would be doing. Like if there was a serial killer, <laughs> right? I'd just be hanging out with my my boo, you know, just watching right. movies and be like, I hope it doesn't happen here. <laughs> yeah, but I mean, uh, I just don't think the movie itself. To, to kind of broadly talk about my feelings on the film, I I don't think it's very effective at being a horror movie or like a thriller or anything because there's no real atmosphere of dread. Weirdly, even though this movie focuses on the town of Haydenfield, I feel like the town feels a lot smaller in this film than it did in the previous one or even the original I do Halloween. Like that, I think that could have been effective if used well, but I think that's just because the movie feels sort of hapdash. Like I don't think it's because the movie's trying to make it seem like Haddonfield is like this very congested small little place. It just feels like it's more that like all these different characters are trying to like fight for our attention. And it just feels mm-hmm. like there's like a mad dash to kind of like know 15 people at once. And uh, yeah, I just, I think I admire the ambition. I, I like that, you know, there's, it, there's an opportunity here to just kind of do the same thing over again. And Corin green and company, I think avoid that, you know, within reason. And uh, I, I like that this movie is willing to be fairly angry and bleak and even sort of sadistic at times, but I just don't think the execution really warrants a film worth champion at the end of the day. You know, I, I liked that intimate setting. I liked that. I felt a connection to Haddonfield. Like I hadn't really felt since the first movie. I do think, I think that is something they carry over that is welcome. 
even though I, I sort of see your point. Like I, I see why it's a little bit of a, a cluster, you know what, for a lot of people watching. And I think it's because like I go into this movie knowing that I'm not going to care about these characters and sort of being like pleasantly surprised that I care about a few of them. <laughs> and my big criticism for this movie, and I think that it's just something you can't really avoid, you know, like you kind of just have to accept is that it's not scary. Like, it's just not like Michael Myers is indestructible in here. He's invincible. And like the movie makes that clear very early. Like it doesn't take long before that becomes obvious. And it's a struggle just for the sense of like, I should be scared. Like I, you know, it's kind of like we were discussing earlier in the sense that like, I should be feeling in the shoes of these people where I, uh, you know, this could be, this could happen to you, but this couldn't happen to like a, a guy who can just shrug off bullet wounds. You know, like that to me isn't scary. It's just when it devolves into being a just sort of like supernatural science fiction kind of movie. And I don't think that's where this sort of story excels. So you kind of have to get, you almost sort of have to lean into that to be like, well, what if you just watch the movie sort of assuming, I don't think this is what they intended, but like Michael Myers is the protagonist and sort of like all these people getting in his way and you just sort of like revel in the kills. It's kind of a weird zone to be in morally. And so I don't recommend it. But I mean, I I definitely think for me, I found myself sort of slipping ever closer to that sort of camp mode, even though it's just so weird because like the movie takes itself too seriously to be camp. Even though there are like right. parts of it that are silly, <laughs> you know, like, yeah, I don't know. I, I do think like the Danny McBride and David Gordon Green influence is like, they don't quite, I think you mentioned it, like the pacing, they don't quite balance it really, really well. I think they try and like, they get a little bit, like, I don't want to make it sound like it's a total misfire, but you can tell, like there are times when you can tell and you're just, you just sort of have to shut it off. I think if you want to still enjoy the movie anyway, but I think a lot of people are just not enjoying it. But I, actually, you know what? I won't even mention that because we'll get into our game later in terms of how people are actually receiving this movie critically and audience wise. Yeah. I mean, I, as I mentioned, had issues with how the movie was, uh, or the previous film was uh, unable to really balance, I think, its tone. I think the movie was, like, trying to be so, like, bleak and serious throughout, and then it had, like, these weird jabs at, like, Dan McBride humor that I don't think, I like Dan McBride a lot, and I like his contributions to uh, David Gordon Green's filmography and how David Gordon Green is able to work on his various shows for HBO. But I just felt like the humor of the first film didn't really jive with what they were going for otherwise. And this film, I I think I appreciate that they are trying to make it more serious, at least for the most part. Like, I think, you know, with the exception of, like we said, the gay couple and a few, like, darkly comedic kills, like, I think the movie's generally trying to avoid kind of the silliness of the the previous film but I, at the same time I, I also kind of think that that makes this movie more of a slog because it's so like you said self-serious and so trying to be like oh like the mob mentality who is the real monster maybe we're the real monster which i think you know it's a fine message pretty on the nose for <laughs> yeah. i i think for a film like this it's kind of weird to make that a message when it's like hmm who's a real monster? I think it's us. I'm like, I don't know. I think it's a looming like six yeah. foot three guy with a mask <laughs> is killing people. I think he's the real monster here. I don't think it's, it's you guys in this case, but it's a political you know. message without that much teeth. You know, it's like, who's, who's going to watch this and have their worldview, 
you know, challenged. Like, who's going to be like, man, I never thought of it that way. Like, nobody. But, right. I mean, they're trying. I, 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 there's a little bit of a respectability, I think, in the way that its political message is a little bit rough around the edges, kind of. Like, it is pretty straightforward, but at the same time, would, you could. Yeah. Cut, it does remind me of kind of how, like, movies of the 70s and 80s handled politics. Like, they didn't take a clear side. They sort of just you know, spoke to like very broad platitudes, but did in a very hacky way, I guess. I guess I would, I would agree if I felt that that was more sincere, but I felt like the shabbiness of the film wasn't like, it just oh, you think it was like, like unintentional. Just, I, not that it's unintentional. I just don't think like, I think they felt like they're kind of going through the motions with this one. Weirdly, even if they're trying to be huh. ambitious in terms of like what they're trying to do stylistically, I felt like, what they're trying to say was just like, oh, we have to do like this sort of thing, like the, you know, like the Simpsons quote, like we're giving mob a bad name sort of thing that's been done however many times at this point. Um, I just didn't find that I messaging just, to be. Uh, I, I, I kind of have to be, disagree with you there. I, I don't think there's a lot. I didn't, I didn't pick up any sort of like going through the motions at all with this. I, I think they really tried. Eh, I, I think do. The, the moralizing felt a bit much, especially considering that, every other line of dialogue seems to be pushing that forward. And in a way, it's just like, make sure you yeah. know this is the point of the movie. <laughs> but I don't, I don't read that. I mean, this is me personally. I don't read that as sort of like, well, we got to do this. I read it more as like, man, I really hope people get this because this is smart. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, I really think that they thought they had something here. That's, that's my only, and I don't know. I, I, I totally understand why it's like throwing people off quite a bit. But I just did not care. Like I was, I I was into this movie's. Like I was on this movie's wavelength. Apparently, I don't know. I mean, to be fair, I, I think it made me more endeared to the film than I was expecting otherwise. Because, like I said, based on the bad reviews, I wasn't reading exactly why I was getting bad reviews. But I thought it was because it was just going for like the Halloween two thing of just like here we're doing this again, where it's just like we're just copying this movie's footsteps. Yeah. Where I think. I didn't expect it to be like messy in terms of like what it was doing wrong or like at least I the why same I felt it was doing mm -hmm. it. Yeah. Totally. But totally. I mean, I mean, if you're going to make, you know, like a, a lesser Halloween sequel, I think I respect this approach where it's like, they're at least trying to do something. I don't think it does it effective or super well, but I, I admire them for at least, you know, it's not like a Halloween five thing where I just felt like they're just kind of cheaply just trying to produce something that, that is for sure. You know, just getting out into the masses. But yeah, I, at the same time, I just don't think Gore and green is able to really effectively narrow down what he wants to do with the film. And I think even though something does well in other movies, like having, you know, small towns with the, you know, kooky characters and all that, or like eccentric personalities. I, I just felt like that didn't even come through with this film particularly well either, unfortunately. All right. Well, it sounds like, we're both kind of mixed on the film. I'm a little bit more positive, but you know, like I'm still mixed. Like I'm not kind of coming out to bat for this one, but I, I do sort of see it as like, I could, I totally see Halloween fans and just general fans of horror being like, ah, this is cool. Why you gotta, why you gotta be so bent out of shape? You know, anything like that. 
Uh, yeah, it, I think its flaws for me are obvious and they're glaring, but they don't ruin the experience for me, at least. I don't think they'll ruin the experience for a lot of people watching this. I think they'll watch this and be like, ah, that's cool. And, you know, it's not going to stick with them, probably. It's not going to be their favorite Halloween movie. But they're probably going to be like, yeah, that's 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 what I want out of a Halloween movie. Michael Myers killing a bunch of people. You know, I, it's very basic sure. in that sense. And it doesn't really matter if we think that David Gordon Green has sort of run his course with these movies because it's very successful box office wise. Uh, it had one of the biggest opening weekends of a film during the pandemic, the biggest of a horror film for sure. It's already made $54 million uh, worldwide. Was it the so biggest day to date opening? I don't know that for sure. I, I think okay. it's, I think Marvel has a beat on that, right? I, I could be wrong. No, I, I would have to double check. I mean, Song Chi wasn't available on Disney Plus. What I'm asking is, it this was, is available but for premiere on... access. Yeah. No, no, I think they stopped that after Black Widow. Oh, you're right. You're right. I was. That's what I was. Uh, you know what? Black Widow would be the only competition, and yeah. I think Black Widow. The only number I remember from Black Widow was that it made something like sixty million from Disney Plus, and I think it made more than that in theaters. So I think Black Widow is still number one. I think this one's probably number two. But that said, Black Widow is not a fair comparison because. You had to pay for Disney Plus. It's not mm -hmm. like this is definitely a bigger opening, I think, for any compared to any of the uh, HBO Max ones where we've seen that, right? Yeah. So is it um, pretty big success, right? For Universal. Yeah. Do you think it's more that people are like, I want to see this in theaters? Like, I don't care that's available on Peacock. Like, horror movies are meant to be seen in theaters, or it's people being like, Peacock? I don't. I, I think it's <laughs> obviously both. It's definitely both. I think it's more so the latter. I think it's okay. more so like, I don't have Peacock. I don't want get this Peacock away from me. <laughs> like, I don't want this on my phone. Uh, no, I, I think like, I'm sure people were sort of like, ah, I could just watch this at home. Halloween is the kind of thing that like watching it at home is a very like acceptable, you know, like it's a horror movie about like being scared at home. I, I think that that's perfectly a defensible thing to enjoy at home. But I do think that people heard there was a new Halloween movie out and you could just watch it at theaters and people get bored. I, I think people are sort of like, I guess I could watch this on Peacock, but I don't want to have to deal with another streaming service I don't have. So like, I'll just go to the theater and like watch it with a couple friends or watch it with my partner or you do whatever. You know, I, I think that is probably the math that people are doing in their heads. And I right. think it works for this to this movie's favor because the reviews, obviously, are, you know, let's do that. Let's play our game. Yeah, I just I asked that because, like, I compare this to, like, Malignant, where everyone, like, who anyone saw it primarily watched it on HBO Max, even though that was available in theaters and has kind of, you know, it's another, not like a slasher, but it's, you know, a horror movie in this thing. People know what they're going to get from a Halloween movie, right? I mean, people sure. are sort of like, it's Halloween. Like, I know what this movie is going to be. Michael even if Myers. it sucks, I'm right. going to get Michael Myers, you know? But right. with Malignant, people are like, well, you know, it could be the worst movie I ever saw. You know what I mean? Like, I guess, yeah. It's tough. Right. It's, it's tough to get people interested in new IP. So, Malignant yeah, too. Who knows what will happen with that? We'll see. Let's settle the math, though, on the Rotten Tomatoes score. Let's play our game. Will Ashton, your task, your job is to guess the Rotten Tomatoes score of Halloween Kills. Have you seen the official tomato meter as of today or no. the audience score? Have you seen that yet? I've seen neither. I think the, okay. the last time I saw the critic score for this was like 
two weeks ago when it was two weeks, premiere wow. day. Venice. What? What? Yeah, Venice or whatever. Yeah, I remember yeah. they put it in some film festival, which was a mistake. Do you remember? <laughs> yeah, I know it's so ridiculous. But do you do you remember what like zone it was? Like, I don't, probably not the specific uh, number. But. No, I, I just remember it was negative. But I think it was like in the forty something percent. Okay. Okay. Um, I'm oh, gonna you, guess now. Okay. Oh, ahead. sorry. Go ahead. No, no, no. Please go. Ahead. Uh, I was gonna give you a hint, but it sounds like you're ready okay. to go. No hints for you. Uh, what was your hint? Well, the hint was just going to be 169 reviews have been counted. You get an okay. extra hint. One of those reviews come from your old pal, John. John Agron. Oh, okay. There you go. Was yours positive or negative? Mine was positive. I was positive. Oh, on wow. Just barely. So but, so you know. it might be up a little bit from what I think it is. Yeah, um, I'm going to – my heart says 35%. So you're guessing 35? Not a yeah. bad guess. It's 39. You're pretty close. You're within five points. You're within four okay. points. So that's, yeah, that's was, a pretty decent guess. I was my first thought was forty two percent, and I was like, "Nah, it's probably too high. I'm going to go low." Because I keep hearing yeah. people who are angrily like not a fan of this film. So I was like, Man, "It's probably thirty something." So all right. Yeah, you know they kind of change things around. I don't know where I could find the average rating. I would like to see that, but it's I don't see it anywhere on here. Oh, so that's annoying. But uh, yeah, so one hundred and sixty nine reviews have been counted so far. And all right, what about the audience score? What do you think about that? I think it's probably split right down the middle. So I'm going to say something like 56%. Way higher. Oh, really? 71%. And it was huh. higher yesterday. I was actually wondering if it was going to say that high. It was like above 75% yesterday when I saw it. This is 2,500 plus verified ratings. And this is why I asked you were on the onset too, because I was like, I was seeing people tweet about this over the last couple of days of like, there's a big disconnect between critics and fans on this movie. And so that's kind of what I was kind of like getting at earlier. Well, like, it yeah. just seems like people came to see a Halloween movie and they're like, yeah, it was good. What did you expect? It's called Halloween Kills and Michael Kills and that's what I wanted from that's the That's what I got. Yeah. What do you want? Um, yeah, I can get that. Um, I mean, I don't know. There is like kind of a weird. I mean, I think the new Bond film is doing fine, but it's not doing great at the moment. And I think that that was a film that has like a certified fresh, like 90 something percent. And then you have something like Venom, which is, you know, getting better reviews than expected. But like that first one was critically thrashed and people were just like, well, I don't know. It's a pandemic. Is it going to repeat business? And people flocked out to see Venom, even though critics were just like, you know, whatever about the film. Uh, so I don't know. There is this kind of weird, you know, divide where audiences, if they're going to come out to see a movie in theaters right now, they don't care what the critics say. They, they're good. They picked, they picked the movie and they're going for it. And they did. And they did. Yeah. Um, what about the cinema score? What do you think that is? Well, based on what you told me, it sounds like audiences are pretty favorable on the film, despite what critics say. So I am going to go with a flat B. B minus. Um, yeah. Which I would have guessed B plus. Mm. I would have been like based on that audience score, especially. But no, B minus. And I, yeah, I find that kind of surprising. I don't know. 71% B minus cinema score. I don't know. The people in Vegas, they, they have their own thoughts, I guess, on Halloween. Maybe they're not big fans of the holiday. But uh, all right. That's Halloween Kills. It is now playing in wide release through Universal. That was produced by Blumhouse, Miramax, and all that. And uh, yeah, it's 105 minutes long. Let's get into our next movie here. The Last Duel. Which is tough because Will Ash and I didn't even see the first duel. I missed it. If there was, was, if there was a second and third duel, I didn't know about it. Are you, are you counting the first duel, the um, 
the Steven Spielberg movie. Like yes, the, the first, trucks. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And, the, and then there's what, just the one Duelists. truck actually. The Duelists, um, which was Ridley yeah. Scott's first film. Yes. Well, yeah. I was wondering if I didn't know which one you considered the first duel. I wonder too if he's like Ridley Scott is like all right. Well, my first movie was The Duelists. And then this movie's called The Last Duel. He's like trolling us a little bit. It's like, it's my last movie. And then he's like, just kidding. House of Gucci comes out. House of Gucci. Yeah. <laughs> so he puts, he puts on an Italian affectation. It's just like, hey, mama mia, spicy meatball. It's, yeah, yeah it's, British Ridley Scott. Ridley Scott. Just brings on. <laughs> that when I think of Ridley Scott, yeah, I'm like, ah, that goofball. <laughs> yeah. Always doing impressions. Up the Matrix. <laughs> uh, we like Ridley Scott in this on this podcast. That's for well, of sure. Of course, yeah. You know, we, I mean, yeah, yeah, we talked about his movies. We talked about Alien Covenant. We talked about All the Money in the World back in 2017. Those are the two movies that have come out since we started Cinemaholics, right? Before that, we had The Martian. That was his last, like, big deal movie. That was, like, the last movie he did, I think, that had, like, cultural impact. Because, like, Alien Covenant, All the Money in the World, like, the only pop culture impact I think we got from that was the... Like people talking about how they did the West Virginia song too much in movies for that one year. And then also like Christopher Plummer, like the whole meme of him playing like different characters. Like that, that's it, right. right? Like, is there any, you yeah. know, but Martian, people love that movie. I yeah, Martian it. was good. Yeah, Martian was a good film. Yeah, no, I mean, I was thinking about that. I was, I was watching the movies. I like when I first heard about the project, I was kind of like, I don't know. Like, I mean, I guess this seems like something up Ridley Scott's alley, but yeah, the more I think about it, like, yeah, he, his first movie is The Duelist. Then, like, throughout his filmography, um, you know, obviously Gladiator is, like, one of his most famous films. But even going back to, like, two of his most well-acclaimed films, you got, like, Alien and Thumb and Louise. Like, those films are very prominent rape culture subtext films. Um, and, you know, like, this is a theme that's yeah. kind of permeated throughout his career. And it kind of feels like Last Duel. And, and I don't, in a way, I don't think it was intentional, but... I think if you're going to evaluate his filmography, this kind of feels like an alchemation of a lot of his, you know, prevalent themes throughout, you know, this you know, 30 or 40 year career. Yeah. And I mean, Ridley Scott, he's a, he's a director who's made more hits than misses, in my opinion, but only by a thin margin. <laughs> like, he's made some crappers. But I would say, you know, Alien, it's his first movie that I think put him on the map. You know, The Duelist was like a tryout. It was kind of like we mentioned Spielberg. It was like Spielberg's duel. It was like, yeah, this guy has the chops. He can do something that led to Steven Spielberg doing Jaws. Right. You know? And the duelists led Ridley Scott to doing Alien. You know, around the time that you know that they were going to be doing the, the Dune movie, you know, and all that stuff. But, no, he makes Alien and he basically creates space horror. <laughs> you know? Like, he, he right. creates a movie that defines sci-fi horror for decades like we're still dealing with alien and people right. trying to rip off alien to this day yeah. not that he wrote the film but yeah no i mean kind of ironic given that like you know it's only a few years after halloween you know kind of similar does yeah a know, year after john, halloween right. 79 yeah. oh yeah yeah yeah. that's right yeah and then he makes blade runner which low-key great movie hard to sit through like we could just say it like it's well it's not I mean, the, the easiest yeah, the director's cut's much better. But like, sorry, ultimate cut, ultimate cut, whatever you call it. I'd say Blade Runner. It's an acquired taste. It's a kind of movie you watch, and you sort of have to like. If you watch it with somebody, you sort of have to give them a few caveats at the beginning, and you're like, just trust me. The tears speech at the end is going to blow your mind, and like, sure. you, know, you know what I mean. So he makes he makes some two like two terrific 
two terrific films. You're right. Thelma Louise is good. He makes a bunch of others in between, but the next movie he does that I think arguably blows the world away, like takes people, like just knocks their socks off is Gladiator. Come on. It's Gladiator. Year 2000. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? It's the most, it, it's one of the in, most influential films of the era. I think some people would consider it his best film. You know, people, people kind of dance around really? Alien, Blade Runner, and Gladiator, and Kingdom of Heaven. Yeah. You don't I think really so? like Kingdom of Heaven. Um, but I, I mean, sure. well, I don't know. I mean, people really do like Thelma and Louise. I think you're underselling that film a little bit. But Well, I'm talking more about like not just critics, but like I don't think like the average moviegoer loves Thelma and Louise oh, as much. Like they do, they like it. No, I think they do. I think they do. I think you're underselling it. We'd have to have a whole thing about it, I suppose. I mean, it's been a long time since I saw it. That's a 91 movie. That's so long ago. And I mean, that ending for Thelma and Louise alone is so influential. and so Very influential, in yes. Pop culture and all that, yeah. Big movie for Susan Sarandon, for sure. I guess, I, for me, though, like, I, I don't know. There's not much comparison. It's like comparing Thelma and Louise to Gladiator is a little well, that's bit... What, that goes back to my earlier point. I think there is, like, I think Last Duel is kind of that median, right? Yeah, like, you know, like the the... You know, the plot of Thelma Louise kicks off because mm. Louise prevents like a rape oh, attack. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. No, then, no, you're you right know, on, right on. Yeah, but you know, I mean, like it, it kind of feels like in a weird way, Last Duel sort of is like, it like, kind of picks all these different things from Ridley Scott's filmography in, in a way that I don't think was intentional, but is interesting to talk about. I, I No, I totally agree with that. And, you know, he's made good movies since. I mean, Black Hawk Down. You know, and then Kingdom of Heaven. I, th- I think Kingdom of Heaven and Martian are like the two movies. Yeah. I, I know people like American Gangster. That was never my favorite. Oh, I movie. like American Gangster. That's a good film. Yeah, I, it's not my favorite. Like I, I don't know. Like it's it's a really good Denzel Washington performance, but it's not one that I guess it just didn't really stick with me for some reason. Sure. But you know, maybe it was the time that I saw it. You know, I mean, two thousand seven. A lot of people like uh, Matchstick Men. Um, Matchstick Men, good movie. Yeah, underrated. Uh, underrated for sure, or at least like underwatched. Um. Alien Covenant is definitely gaining a cult following. I'm a it fan is, of it. Which okay, um, uh, Prometheus has its you know little fan club, I guess. Robin Hood, nobody cares. Obviously, yeah, no one cares about Robin. Hood. Body of Lies, I still don't understand what was going on. Oh, I fell asleep during Body of Lies. I, I almost did. I had to like force myself to stay awake during that. I mean, what an embarrassment uh, for DiCaprio and Russell Crowe. And, and, and Exodus, Gods and Kings. I never saw that one. I saw that. I barely remember it. Man, I that movie is the, such a blip. I remember the whitewashing controversy. That's the only yeah. thing I remember about the film. Which is funny because I saw some people comparing how Ridley Scott, when he makes Exodus, Gods and Kings, obviously a movie that is supposed to be depicting, you know, Israelites you know, and Egyptians, and he's using white actors, and... He's sort of being like, well, yeah, I, I can't just cast people, you know, this movie won't make money unless I cast really big actors. And then he makes the last duel with big actors, Adam Driver, Matt freaking Damon and Jodie Comer. Comer. Yeah. Comer, yeah. And last duel is like one of the biggest box office flops in years. Well, <laughs> like, I think that's yeah. a, a Disney problem more than a Ridley Scott problem. Searchlight. Like, yeah, oh, sorry. Well, well, Disney, Disney, we should yeah. say, yeah, Searchlight, which was Fox, which is now Disney and it's all that stuff. It's 20th Century Studios or whatever you want to call it. So because that's that's been Rid- Ridley Scott. He bounces around between studios. He's done a lot 
with everybody. I, I think he's done a bunch with Warner Brothers. He's done a few with Universal. I know he's done a lot, though, with 20th Century Fox. He, he, you know, Alien was Fox, and Gladiator was Universal? I think it was Universal. Um, I, I think you're right. Check. No, no, yeah, I think you are right. But Kingdom yeah. of Heaven. I know Kingdom of Heaven was, was Fox. So, like, you know, he's all over the place. But the Martian, which is where he and Matt Damon kind of connected – and which is why we have Matt Damon in the last duel. That is Fox. And, you know, there you go. I think, I think that, he's yeah. worked with Fox for like at least the last decade or so. Uh, yeah, because you did the counselor with Fox too. I was going to bring Prometheus. up the counselor. I wanted to talk to you about the counselor. Why? <laughs> I, don't, I mean, it's a lot of people will swear by it. I, I only see really? it the one time and I was kind of confused. And I was just like, I, I don't know where I landed on that one. Like I, I'm kind of, I, for me, that's like a question mark. Movie. Great just cast. Like, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> Cormac McCarthy script. Oh yeah. He did do the script for that. Yeah. Didn't he? His oh, only original script. He just like dropped it off at Hollywood. Just like, Oh, Hey, I wrote this thing. If you're interested. Yeah. I mean, it's it's this, like, huge bidding war. Yeah. For people who don't know, like this guy, <laughs> Cormac McCarthy, <laughs> uh, novelist, obviously um people people know him for like the road i think that's like the big uh, that's for me is like i'd give no, a lot of respect for the road and well i uh, mean are you talking in terms of his novels i mean on the road's his most famous but his film wise on the road but the road because on the road is jack sorry, sorry 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 the road yeah. is yeah yeah because that one like did not like the pulitzer prize yeah i did but i mean the the most famous thing i think now is no country for old men yes which inspired i was about the to mention yeah name, yeah yeah. Oh my gosh. And uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's amazing this guy hasn't done more screenplays, but that's a that's a conversation for another day. You like the counselor, right? Uh, can't I say... wouldn't go that far. Like I oh, said, okay. <laughs> that's it's what, a giant that the... question mark for me. <laughs> okay. It's like, that was I, the vibe I, was getting. I was like, are we going to have like an argument about the counselor? Like... <laughs> no, I, I don't know. I want to revisit. I've only seen it the one uh, time. And I just remember when I saw it, I was in college. And I was just like, I, it's been so long. Was was that good? Was that bad? No, I don't, it was I don't not good. Well, I mean, I I would rewatch it. Maybe I'd be proven wrong, but that was one of the that was a movie that came out too. You know, like that's 2013, I think. And I I remember that was that was a time in my life. I was young and I was naive, and I was like, man, you have Javier Bardem in this. You have Brad Pitt. You have oh, I love all these actors. How could a movie with these actors be bad? And then I watched it. And funny enough, it was around the time that Cloud Atlas came out. So that was a very informative time for me. Mm. But anyway. Cloud Atlas, good film. <laughs> okay. But uh, yeah. Are you so, disagreeing? That's another conversation for another day. Uh, my opinion of Cloud Atlas changes every year. I'm not, right, well, I'm not even lying to you. I, I never a, know what to make of that movie. But anyway. All right. Put a pin on that. We'll talk about that during <laughs> Matrix Resurrections, I guess. And We're uh, like 20 minutes into yeah. this. We haven't even talked about the last duel. But the last thing I'll say about Ridley Scott is The Martian. Big deal movie. It's like his big deal. It's like every decade has a big deal movie for this guy. And The Last Duel is not it. You know? it's not yeah. going to be it. And I think House of Gucci, maybe it'll have more luck. That's going to be, that's universal, I think. So is it oh, okay? universal? And I think MGM or United Artists as well. Yeah, I remember MGM. Yeah. Yeah. I think it's both of them like co-distributing, but no last duel should like, this should be the Ridley Scott movie that brings him back to like pop culture zeitgeist. I agree. Right. Because yeah. 
it has all of the the trademarks of a Ridley Scott movie that we want to see, that people want to see. It's got Kingdom of Heaven. It's got Mm -hmm. Thelma and Louise. It's got Gladiator. It's Ridley Scott doing what what we know he does best, which is capture historical setting, and, make uh, it epic, and don't yeah. make us think about how historically inaccurate it is the entire time. Right. right? And don't forget the, the duelist as well, obviously. Yes, but I feel like I feel like the duelist is not as popular or as well known a movie, right? I mean, if I it guess. is, I'm not aware. Well, I mean, two friends that duel each other. I think that's yeah. well. The similarities. I'm I'm trying to like bring it down though to like his most influential films. Like when people okay, think yeah, of Ridley sure. Scott, you know, they think of Gladiator. Right. They think of Kingdom. Of Heaven. Yeah, that's all I'm saying. Yeah, I get you. Right. The Last Duel stars Matt Damon, as we mentioned. Who's this guy? You know, I when I was just doing my home. review for this, I was sort of like, <laughs> <laughs> wait, what? I thought you're just like just some guy, just some like, just some hunk, yeah, just yeah. some hunk. <laughs> this movie takes place in France. He's uh, an. This is based on a true story. We got to say, based on the 2004 novel by Eric Jasper, and it's the last legally sanctioned duel in France. This is during the 1380, 1386, so 14th century, and this is like the like the middle of the bubonic plague. Like the context for this is that people are dying left and right from a plague, and people are strapped for cash. And we have this Matt Damon character mm. who, you know, this movie is split up in three parts. Uh, yes. It's Rashomon, Very, uh, yeah, basically. Rashomon, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So Rashomon, Kurosawa, you know, this idea of like telling the same story of a rape, but like from three different perspectives. But it's not just the rape. It's telling the story of like these three guys, or sorry, no, these two guys and one woman who each of them has a story that spans about 16 years and you see it from different perspectives. Matt Damon's is the first one. He plays this guy, uh, Carouge, LaRouge, something around that. Uh, we know Jean, I know that his name is Jean. And, uh, he is like a stereotypical, he's like the main character from Robin hood. He's not Robin hood, but he's like, he's kind of how that character was portrayed in Ridley Scott's Robin hood movie from 2010, where he's just sort of, he's a hero. He fights the bad guys. He's kind of just like, I do things for the good of it. He's very traditional, old-fashioned. So we watch the first part of this movie from his perspective. And the second part of the movie is from Adam Driver's perspective. So Adam Driver, one of the most exciting actors in Hollywood, I would say. I think you would agree. That Marriage Story. You love that movie. Big fan of his. I think he's very talented. I'm a big fan as well. I mean, Adam Driver. Fan of his since Girls. We're not as big of fans of Adam Driver as John Oliver is, but that's okay. And a few people are. Uh, I don't know what that's a reference to, but oh, we don't have to get into it. But anyway, okay. Adam Driver kind of plays his bestie. You know, they're best friends, super good buddies, but they're different, right? So like Matt Matt Damon's John inherited certain things he's sort of he he's a warrior kind of guy he's got a mullet haircut he's really buff he's really tough and he fights people he kills them but his his whole motivation in life is pride honor he feels like he inherited everything so he has to prove himself all the more adam driver is a different guy he is a suave dashing roguish kind of person who had very humble beginnings he didn't inherit anything he had to earn everything but not just through fighting, he earned a lot of his prowess, his power, through his connections. 
He's very good at networking. He's like a PR guy almost. He is a guy who strikes up a very deliberate friendship with a count played by Ben Affleck. And that brings us to the next big thing about this movie is that Ben Affleck and Matt Damon did a screenplay for the first time since Good Will Hunting back in 1997. Yes. Their Oscar winning screenplay. Oscar winning screenplay, Good Will Hunting. Great movie. One of my favorite films of the late 90s. And yeah. they're back. The boys are back. Matt Damon and Ben Affleck. Back but they're not friends least. in this movie, that's for sure. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But uh, so there's this whole rivalry that happens between them. They, they basically they want an excuse to fight each other. They just want to fight. They want to get into it uh, because they don't respect each other. They have like sort of a storied history of like they're friends in one one point and they're not friends in another point because one person did this and one person did that. And then along the way, Adam Driver's character, Jacques, he's like, man, yeah, Matt Damon's wife. She could get it. She is. She is very, very beautiful. And I deserve to be with somebody. She deserves better than Matt Damon's Jacques, the sort of oaf with a mullet. She deserves a sophisticated man who knows Latin, like me. And so he decides that he should be with her. And it culminates in a very horrific and graphic rape scene that happens in this movie. And we're giving that away because it's the, the story. You know, it's not, it's not a spoiler, I don't think. I mean, it's... Well, I mean, it's revealed in the beginning of the, it the is. first act. Yeah. It is. It's revealed very, very early on. But the point is that we get the this situation, this horrible thing that he commits from his perspective in the second part of the movie and then from her perspective in the third part of the movie. The third part of the movie is devoted to Jodie Comer. British actress, to me, like we saw her in Free Guy. To me, one of the like up and coming actors right now. I, I think that she is on a trajectory because I just watched her in a movie where she's up against Matt Damon and Adam Driver, and she almost embarrassed them, in my opinion. Because I like, I really like Matt Damon and Adam Driver. I think they're great actors, and I think they're good in this movie. I think Jodie Comer made them look like idiots. Like not idiots, that's pretty harsh. But like, I think she kind of upstaged them. I mean, and that is to be no fair, small feat. I mean, to be fair, I think Matt Damon and uh, Adam Driver are supposed to be idiots in this film. But I get you. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's not really what I mean. But yeah, yeah, you're totally. But that's the thing. It's like she comes out of this movie, and like this, she has the hardest role in this movie, easily, because the writing around this movie makes it so difficult for her character to make a lot of sense. She has to be a holistic human being between three different perspectives. Two perspectives around two guys who do not understand her and then her own. And she makes something that could have felt stilted and weird and sort of like, ah, this person doesn't feel like they're the same. She makes it all feel complete. Like this is a performance. Like if she does not get a nomination for either best actress or best supporting, I will like throw my hands up. It's like, what else do you people want? Like, this is a tremendous performance from her. And it's, it's a big reason why I think this movie is much better by my estimation than it would have been otherwise. But, uh, what do you, what do you think of the last duel? Because I, I, we didn't touch around the story that much, but yeah, the two guys, they fight other woman, they have a duel. Rashomon. There you go. There you go. Yeah. 
Um, yeah, I mean, I, I agree that uh, Jodie Comer is uh, quite good. I don't know if she'll get nominated only because I imagine that this movie is going to be overlooked come award season just because I think they're going to uh, put all of their eggs into the House of Gucci basket, even though my prediction at the moment, and maybe I'll be wrong, I think this movie is going to be better than House of Gucci, but we'll find out in a month or so, I guess. Um, just I don't know. I'm not get, I'm not getting good vibes from the trailer for that film. But I haven't seen it. Uh, but also an Adam Driver movie. I mean, Adam Driver and Ridley Scott. Like I would. That, that's a weird position to be in right now. I guess yeah. That's that is weird. Yeah. I mean, I mean, he's probably fine. It's just like well, one of these one of these two are probably going to work yeah. out for me. Maybe spaghetti against the uh, wall for him. Yeah. I mean, I think he likes to take risk. I mean, look at like Annette and all that. But um, yeah. I mean, I think. My main interest became uh, when I when I found obviously that it was going to be the screenwriting reunion of Ben Affleck and uh, Matt Damon. I realized you were talking. I missed my chance to do my letterbox review and say Project Green Knight, and I'm kicking myself for that. But that's <laughs> oh my neither gosh. here nor there. By the way, there's a third screenwriter, and I forgot yes, to mention Nicole, her, Nicole, Nicole Holson. Uh, yeah, yeah. So she does the third part of the movie covering Jodie Comer's performance. And it's a great idea because they're sort of like, well, you know what? If you're going to do a part of this movie from the woman's perspective, put a woman screenwriter behind it, you're going to probably get much better results. Honestly, yeah. I mean, not a guarantee, but it certainly does not hurt. And no, uh, she's I, I obviously think, an acclaimed yeah. screenwriter right. in her own right, for sure. Uh, uh, yeah. Can you ever forgive me is her big applaud. Um, yeah, I mean, she wrote that one, right? She didn't uh, she did. direct no, we're just right, talking. Yeah. About, yeah, we're just talking about screenplays. Yeah, um, but uh, yeah, I mean, I think you know, say what you will about them as as actors or people, but I think as uh, producers and screenwriters, I think Matt Damon and Ben Affleck have kept the careers that they have because I think they're very smart and I think they know what goes into good filmmaking. And I think a film like this is certainly benefited from their influence. And like I said, I think also it's influenced by. Um, uh, Ridley Scott, you know, knowing this type of genre backwards and forwards at this point. Um, I sometimes kind of feel, and I'm wondering if you're going to agree, that some of his, like, blockbuster tendencies kind of take away from what I feel should be a more intimate story, um, at least in some key scenes. But at the same time, I think, like, the action scenes in this are effectively pretty brutal and violent, especially when we get to the titular last duel. I think it's uh, pretty gripping and... Uh, uh, you know, enthralling because Ridley Scott is so good at this type of medieval um, thrashing and dashing and all that. But um, yeah, I mean, like I said, I mean, I don't think the the Rashomon approach is especially novel because we've seen it done in Rashomon, obviously. But at the same time, I think this is a movie about like examining the different levels of power. And I think it does in some, you know, expected ways, but also in some kind of subtle and even more thoughtful ways than I was anticipating. Uh, and I found myself uh, not pleasantly surprised, I guess, but definitely uh, surprised by how much I was able to be engaged with it, considering I'm not a super big fan of mythology or not mythology, uh, medieval sort of dramas such as these. But I think just the characters are pretty well defined. And I think the, the intricacies of their individual stories, it it follows a formula, but I think they for, they follow that formula well and it produces a a good bit of adult oriented blockbuster filmmaking it's interesting you yeah that you call it a blockbuster right because i 
I didn't come out of this movie being like, man, this is a blockbuster. I, I guess I, I saw it as like a, a larger than life sort of epic picture for sure. But yeah, I, I'd have to wrap my head around that a little bit. Yeah, you know, it's funny because the Rashomon comparison is so obvious. I mean, you watch the movie and you're just like, yeah, because Rashomon itself is about a rape. It's about a rape told through the perspective of several different people, in fact. And what I love about Rashomon is that it's sort of about how it's so difficult to parse the truth because perspective and memory is so hazy. Like it's about the fact that like objective truth is something that exists, but people just can't obtain. We don't have the power, you know, to really get the full truth of any single thing. And it's a helpful reminder in that respect because of how it sort of like educates on the the human condition. And so Rashomon is doing that over here. The Last Duel is doing something very different. It's using the same mechanism, but to say something very different. It's trying to say, like, actually, yeah, you know what? There are some perspectives that are truer than others, and it's okay to put more weight into the account of a person who was the mo- who was traumatized by this. And I, I appreciate that on some on. A very deep, profound level. I mean, I think the big problem with this movie, the thing that prevents it from being an out and about, like beloved film by everyone, I think what people are throwing at this movie is that we do have to sit through two pretty awful rape scenes. One of them is way worse than the other. I mean, that's just like the that's just how it kind of turns out. One of them is bad, like it's just bad, but like the other one is even worse. And that's the point. It's sort of trying to tell you like, wow, you know, like you thought that was bad. This was bad. Like it's, it's doing all this stuff. It's painting how men see themselves sometimes, especially in these situations as like the hero of the story. And I kind of like was worried watching this movie, for example, that as I was watching it, it was going to do all of this moralizing and all of this preaching about trying to avoid these cliches of cinema to tell a story that's like this stuff is bad and like we shouldn't be like celebrating this sort of thing only for it to end in a an exciting visceral duel you know where it's just sort of like all right you just got this whole message now watch these two people fight each other it's gonna be super cool and awesome and that's not this movie and i think that is what makes this movie actually kind of a bit better than I was expecting um, because you kind of referenced it already, but the duel itself is brutal. It's ugly. Like it's gross. And like you watch it, it kind of reminds me, it's it's some of the stuff that I liked about the early parts of like Game of Thrones. Before Game of Thrones just became another fantasy, you know, epic thing, it was actually about something. It was about like, wow, like these people doing what they're doing for their own pride leads to this grotesque violence. And that's what this movie ultimately does. And I think that it, it kind of nails it in that aspect. But as I said before, you have to sit through a lot to get to it. And I don't think it's going to be worth it for everybody. And it's a long movie. Like this movie feels long. It is long. And I I keep going back and forth on like, was it all necessary? Like sometimes I'm kind of thinking to myself, did you need to show 
the rape scene from Adam Driver's character's perspective. Like, could it have been a fade to black? Like, I, I'm kind of going, I'm bad war with myself on it because like, I do see what he's trying to say. I do see how he's sort of like framing these two scenes that are very similar in some details, but very different in others and sort of showing you like, this is why he's like trying to justify what he does and, and all this stuff. And then when you see her side of it, you're like, oh my gosh. And so again, I, I kind of find myself split where I'm a little bit more in favor of this movie though, is like, man, I, I watch this movie and I see these subtle things. And, and I know some people are going to disagree. Some, some people are going to say like, it's not different enough. Like the, the, subtle nuances between these three perspectives aren't big enough to justify doing it three times. Not to say that you see every scene repeated over and over again, but like you see some scenes repeated and there are just like little details, little things of like how the camera will capture a different side of a person's body because that's who's being looked at at that time. And it actually sort of contributes to the story because you're like, Oh, now I see the reaction of the person or actually, I see the uh, the opposite of that. I see like the person themselves and how they think that they look during the situation. And yeah, there's there's something kind of deep and interesting about that. But I don't know if I like this movie as much as you do. It's not. I don't know. But it, it sounds like you like this quite a bit. I'm kind of like going back and forth a little bit. I don't know. Uh, I don't know if I like it quite a bit. Maybe I'm overselling how high I am on the film. I think it's a good film. Like I think it works. I, I think it's pretty like like if we were to give grades, I think it's somewhere in like the B territory. I don't think it it reaches A level. Like it's like I said, it's I not gave it a B on Rotten okay. Tomatoes. So yeah, yeah. I mean, I think it's like in the like a solid B territory. Like probably uh, like it's not like a top five Ridley Scott movie. I'll even think it's maybe even a top ten Ridley Scott movie, but definitely like top fifteen. Like just it does everything you expect from a Ridley Scott film. I think it combines a lot of his themes from his other. And, you know, recurring motifs and all that from those, his other films. But I agree that, like, I was kind of wondering, considering that the movie opts for the three different uh, chapters, why there wasn't more differentiation between the two narratives. I mean, obviously, like, the big thorough line is that, like you said, like, every character views themselves as the, the main character of their own story for obvious reasons. But then, like, they, uh, you know, like, they in the one scene you're talking about, like, when we see Matt Damon's side of the story, he's the one that says like the, the, the line that's, I don't remember exactly what it is, but basically just like, I am, you know, the noble man here and I call for a truce. And then we see from Adam Driver's perspective, he's like, you know, he, he says the actual thing and their lines are switched. And then you find out later that it's just like, it was just some secondary guy that <laughs> said, said all this. And it's just like, yeah, I mean like stuff like that. I kind of want more of that to kind of justify the, uh, the, the three different perspectives here. Um, but at the same time, I also feel like there is something to be valued from Ridley Scott taking a pretty uh, thorough line to the execution, allowing it to feel pretty fleshed out in terms of, like you said, the kind of more subtle nuances here that makes it uh, more investing, including some of the oddities. For instance, I don't think we've really talked a lot about um, Ben Affleck's performance, which I think should be uh, noted upon because of how uh, how much it, it feels uh different from I think anything he's done in this 21st century in terms of just being hammy in a deliberate yeah. sort of way like it's probably almost the most unrecognizable yeah I mean like when you see him in the wig and all that stuff it's just kind of like well how, how are they gonna sell this yeah. like you know like <laughs> like I don't know if I don't know if it's far enough to justify 
I, I sometimes hear like people when they see certain actors and period pieces, just like I don't buy that he doesn't know what a cell phone is. I was kind of worried that that would be the case for Ben Affleck, but I think he just knows that like he has the type of face that's so like modern that he just kind of like goes kind of hammy in a way that I don't think I've seen since, fittingly enough, maybe Shakespeare in Love when he was playing like the like kind of overzealous actor in that film. Like I think that. It's probably the hammiest performance he has given in the past uh, few decades now. And it feels like this is, you know, clearly him in supporting actor mode. So he's just like, hey, I'm just going to play it up. Uh, you know, give himself some fun scenes. But, you know, for the most part, just kind of doing his own weird sort of thing in a way that could have been really distracting and off-putting. But I think he dials it to just the right pitch in a way that I find uh, pretty admirable as far as uh, this current uh, chapter in his career. He's doing some really wild, interesting stuff, I think. I think for me, like where this movie works best is really the first and third parts. Because it, and like I mentioned before, you start off with Matt Damon as this guy who, man, he thinks he's just like the hero, you know, of, like against all odds, he'll defeat the enemy and all this stuff. He sees himself as this kind chivalrous, you know, chivalry. Like that's the big word for it with his wife played by Judy Comer. And when you get to her part of the story, wow. Like you really see like how he comes across to her is so different and it rings true. Like, at least it did to me, like, you know, like little touches of like when he asks something of like, Oh, are you okay? And like where he's actually standing when he says that, you know, yeah. he sees it as like he comes up to her and boldly and and politely, yeah, like Prince Charming. Yeah. yeah, it's like embraces her. But in reality, he's like across the room, barely interested. It, it's like stuff like that where I'm just like, man, that is dialing the message home because the Adam Driver character, he sucks. He's evil. Like you watch it and you get it. You're not going to be like, man, what a nuance. No. To me, I think the linchpin of this is the Matt Damon character thinking he's one thing. And then I think with the Adam Driver character, it's more of like, this guy will just not admit his problems. Like, he won't admit his flaws. He won't admit what he's done wrong and all this stuff. There's this part of this movie where he's like, well, the, the lady gave the customary protestations, you know. And like, mm -hmm. by the way, that's like another thing. It's like the accents in this movie are really annoying. Like, I don't know what you thought of them, but I was very... I like, thought they're fine. I, uh, I think they're distracting. If they me. were dialed up even one or two notches more, I think it would have been bad. But I think Ridley Scott kept them on point. I don't I, know. I feel like he's yeah. trying to do this like weird cross between British accent and American accent. And I'm just are we like, talking it's nothing. Matt or are we talking Adam? Both. Okay. I thought Jodie Comer did the best job. Like, whereas like, well, I wasn't thinking about it. Well, she wasn't right. doing a British accent. She was just sort of yeah. doing like a sort of a dialect, but yeah. it wasn't like you couldn't pinpoint it. That was the issue. It's like you either couldn't pinpoint it or it would be like too much one way or the other with, I think Damon and driver, it's like they're American actors. And I think that they're just sort of like doing uneven tinges of different countries <laughs> to their speech. And it's not consistent. That, that was what was throwing me off. Well, don't you think that kind of adds to like the themes of the film and all that? Because it's that all about suck? like there's oh, sorry. <laughs> no, well, beyond that, I just mean that like they the whole idea that this movie sort of weirdly like Green Knight is about like myth making and like their sense of pride and nobility and like how they feel like they have to present themselves in a certain way, not only for their sake or for the people's sake, but like for their own historical purposes, they feel like they have to be 
like this sort of idealized man and all this stuff, especially in a man's world and all that. And mm. like, you know, the fact that they're, they're kind of like playing into a certain image as actors in the same time, I feel like maybe undeliberately adds a meta context to that. Well, I forget where you landed on the green Knight. I'm glad you brought it up for me. The green Knight, like is much better than this movie. Like, I think that it's, it's the movie that has way more to stand on. And to what you're saying delivers all of that much for me, at least in a much more uh, profound fashion. Whereas this movie, you know, I, I think that it kind of, it gets the job done and it, it has some quirks about it that I think are very respectable and, and interesting. And it, it's certainly an award season kind of movie. Like you could do way worse, but I found myself not quite as enraptured by it. And I'm a little disappointed because I think that uh, I, I wish that this movie had really just swept me off my feet. I wish it was sweeping all critics off their feet. I mean, it's getting good reviews and everything, but I don't know. I I know that Matt Damon and Adam Driver are going to be fine. Really, Scott's going to be fine. But Jodie Comer, I mean, she just everything I've seen her in has been so strong. I mean, even in a movie like Free Guy, which is you know, it's like a summer, it's like just a cheesy brain, you know. Yeah, she's the, highlight of, she's the highlight of that movie like that movie is kind of weird without her and i just hope that this like box office issue is not i i hope that free guy which was very successful box office wise overshadows all of that and i hope that she keeps getting great opportunities because she earned she is she earns it she deserves it yeah no you're here <laughs> <laughs> i guess we can agree on that um, I don't really have much else to add. I mean, I, I don't know. I, I, I kind of, it, it sounds like we're about the same place with this movie. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a sturdier film than I think you might be giving it credit, at least in my opinion. But uh, I do agree with you that I feel like there was an opportunity here to make a great film. And I think it ultimately is just more of a good one, but I, I do think what works here is, is solid and exceptional. And as we've been basically alluding to, we're kind of, at this interesting point where we're seeing how Hollywood is responding to the me too movement and incorporating sure. stories into that. And sometimes, you know, we get a movie like bombshell, which just sucks at that. And it's just like, you know, kind of just trying to ride the tide in a very obvious and clunky way. And then we have, um, you know, a movie like this or like promising Young woman. I think, uh, you know, I think is, or they're not without their flaws and there's a lot of uh, things to be parsed from both those films in terms of what they do right and wrong. But I think they, they tackle it a little bit more cinematically and grandiose in their, their ideas, I guess. And I don't know if either is, I don't think we've gotten like, well, I guess you can argue the assistant is probably the, the best one we've gotten so far in terms say. of tackling the, the me too movement in a, in a film fashion, at least as far as I've seen. So it actually but, tackles it head on. It's not just dancing right. around it. I, well, I think, uh, I think mm -hmm. promising a woman isn't dancing around anything. Oh, for sure. For sure. <laughs> yeah. Um, but at least when you're making the compare, like for the critic making the comparison, I I'm with you there. I, I think that look, these movies have a point of view and I get frustrated when people are just sort of like this movie's preachy. It's like, no, it's not preachy. It just, it has a point of view that you don't connect with. And you know, that's that. What are you going to do? Uh, you can just move on if you want with this movie. I think that's the case. And I don't think that this is like doing any sort of moralizing that rings as false or exploitative or just sort of like we're going to comment on this without reckoning with it. And I think that if there is one thing about this movie that is great, it is the duel itself. I think that entire sequence, it, I had Ben-Hur chariot flashbacks like the first time I saw that scene. 
you know, from Ben Hur. I mean, I, it's the kind of stuff that I, I can't remember the last time my heart was pounding the way it was during the actual duel. And it's not because I cared about these guys who ca- forget them. Adam Driver, Matt Damon, I did not care about their livelihood because I won't give it away, but like the movie makes it clear that the real stakes are on Marguerite. And like what happened, Marguerite being Judy Comer, I don't know if you ever said her name, but what happens to them affects her unfairly, but that is the reality of that situation presented in the movie and in the real life events, right? So watching that duel, I was like so conflicted. I was like, I was on the edge of my seat. Like I hate, it's a cliche, but it was true. Like you could see it. Like I was about to fall off and it's because I cared about her. It's like the empathy I had for this character, like that stuff is, it works. So if you're going to nail anything in this movie and it's going to be that, then not, you know what? That's, that, that's a lot. That's a lot accomplished by me. So yeah, I come out pretty favorable on last duel, but not, not overwhelmingly. So. Yeah. I mean, I think, as you mentioned, it's a long film, but I also think there's something to be admired about the fact that for the most part, this is a film about like litigations and courts and all that, but it's done a blockbustery way. And it's done, I think for the most part, a fairly engaging and entertaining way as well. And I think that's not something to be outright dismissed. Like the fact that a movie like this is able to be so much about such nitty gritty things and able to be pretty, broadly accessible. I don't know. I think that's pretty commendable. And I think that's only something a filmmaker like Ridley Scott can really pull off in that respect. Yeah. Cause it's never about the nitty gritty. It's not about, you know, the land going to this person. It's about these men's sort of like inability to deal with these arbitrary things. Bruised egos more. Yeah, exactly. Like there is a deeper thing behind it and it's easy to recognize. Like Scott isn't just trying to like invent like stakes like just pull them out of nowhere in order to pull the story along. Yeah, he's not doing that. But anyway, we we talked a lot about the last duel, and I think that, that honestly, that is a testament I think to the movie itself because like I have been thinking a lot about this movie since I saw it. I have been sort of like going back and forth on a lot of different things, and that's a great sign. Like I, I genuinely am like conflicted on a lot of this movie. I understand why. Like I see people who love this movie. I see people who hate it. I see people who kind of like us and in between. But like. One thing is for sure, it's hard to watch this movie and not have an opinion. <laughs> like I think that's the case. So, yeah. I mean, I think it's a good film. I mean, that's my broad, you know, simple takeaway is I think it works. It's good. I don't think it's as good as it could have been, but I think it does its job. It does its well. And uh, I was satisfied. Big flop of a movie. It costs about oh, yeah. $100 million. And I, I, you can kind of, you see a lot of that money on screen. I mean, they, they brought these worlds to life. I mean, it's, it's a very well-crafted film. And that said, I think the Green Knight was able to accomplish a lot of that with a much lower budget. So what are you going to do about that? But yeah, man, $9 million worldwide the day we're recording this after opening Oof. weekend. That is very bad. Not even, not even a 10th of the budget. Not even a 10th. And yes. you know, for context, like a movie that costs a hundred million dollars to make, it's got to make like two hundred million dollars to break even. Around that, like that's that's at lowballing least, yeah. it. You that's know? That, that's to be in the black. Yeah, or at least like yeah. So nine million dollars out of about two hundred million. Yeah, this is going to be a big blow to twentieth century um, and Disney. But I'm sure they're kind of looking at this and not caring because it's probably going to be a big 
award season movie. So I imagine that despite its length, um, it's it might get a little bit of extra juice. But no, I, I think it's going to be in the red for sure. It might not be like extremely in the red forever, but who knows? Yeah, I just um, I don't know. I'm more cynical about these things. Like I see how they just kind of threw a hidden life in the trash last year as far as their release schedule. Uh, they just kind of like dumped it in a way that that felt pretty disrespectful. And then similarly, I'm I'm really worried about French Dispatch because I feel like that's kind of kind of going in under the curtain as well. And they're just going to be like, well, people don't go out to see you know art, you know, movies from credited filmmakers. So just free guy seven instead. And you know, I just like I don't know. I just feel like this is their way of like you know kind of spiting uh, these. Uh, former Fox movies, but also just kind of being like, well, we don't have to spend a hundred million dollars on these adult prestige dramas because people don't show up when it's just like, well, you're the one that, you know, marketed it poorly, released it during a pandemic. Spent too much know, money. I mean, spent too much again, money on it. A24 yeah. is able to do this. And like, you know, Green Knight wasn't a bit box office phenomenon, but that's the thing. It didn't have to be, <laughs> you know? Yeah. I don't know. I just, it's just more frustrating to me that, like, you know, I, I, that's why I want people to see this movie and support it because it's just like, sure, I, it doesn't make a difference. I think there's no way this becomes a, a profitable film unless, like, overseas it does phenomenally well or something. But uh, that's probably not likely at this point. Well, if you do want to see it, I yeah, I can't stress enough. Big trigger warning for this movie for sure. If you are somebody who finds yourself, you know, certainly, you know. If you find it to be a difficulty to sit through graphic violence, sexual violence, uh, for whatever reason, then yeah, this is a tough movie to watch. So we gotta, we gotta make that clear. I hope we have. And, you know, otherwise, you know, you're going to get a movie here that is deep, nuanced, layered, great world building, great mythology, great, just really great craftsmanship. I mean, it's Ridley Scott. I mean, you watch this movie and you're getting, you're in the dirt with these guys. Like you're, you're immersed. Like that's, that's the Mm big big benefit you're going to get from this movie that if that is what you are looking for so yeah yeah that's the last duel uh yeah it is 153 minutes long but how is it doing with critics so we kind of already covered the box office which it's not great but we'll ask what do you think the tomato score is what do you think it is on what do you what score do you think it has on Rotten Tomatoes. 185 reviews have been counted. One of them's mine. So that gives you a little bit of something. I'm going to say 83%. Once again, you're within five points. Or oh. within, sorry, I keep saying five. You're within four points, just like last time. Okay. 87%, so a little higher. So it's an 87, which is very high. It's certified fresh. Yeah, and that's, that's what makes me think that it's going to get awards buzz. Yeah. Yeah, maybe. I think for a movie of this scale with that high of a score, I think it's a good chance, but you know, uh, all right. Audience score about that. Uh, 76%. So you guess 76%. It is 79%. So closer. Yeah. Within three points. Right. Not bad. 500 plus verified rating. So it's lower than the Rotten Tomatoes score, but it, yeah, it sounds like you kind of are like, yeah, maybe not everybody's, you know, the audience is probably aren't loving this as much as the critics. That was your mm-hmm. assumption? Yeah, that's what I'm thinking. Yeah. Um, Fair enough. I'm going to guess Cinema Score is a B-. minus. It's a B+, plus, which is oh, what wow. I thought right. Halloween Kills would be, but no, B+, plus, 
the cinema maybe score. They, that's uh, higher than I thought. Yeah. Maybe they flipped the uh, report card and they, they reported <laughs> yeah. the wrong scores. <laughs> that would make sense. Um, but okay, so that's our little game. Last duel. It's not playing in theaters. We got to get to our last movie. I mean, we talked so much about Halloween Kills. We talked so much about The Last Duel, which is great. I'm glad we got to talk about those movies. But let's talk about something, yeah. a smaller movie, a little bit of a, a movie that's a little bit more under the radar. And that, you know what? That's fitting, considering the subject matter at hand. We're going to talk about The Velvet Underground, the first documentary directed by Todd Haynes. Todd Haynes has made plenty of other movies yeah, I would I would like to get into his filmography, but I think we spent too much time talking about the filmographies of the last two directors. So <laughs> look we, him up. He's made great films. We yeah. can say broadly, I think his last big movie that was widely accepted was Carol. You know, Dark Waters was a big deal for some people, I guess, but uh, it wasn't, uh, you know, it, it wasn't as celebrated. Wonderstruck, same deal. Carol from 2015. I really like Carol. I've yeah, seen it. Good two or three times now and it gets better and better fantastic movie i think uh shame yeah. that it's weinstein but you know yeah uh, that was one of his last ones i think in this in yeah. that respect right yeah, yeah yeah 2015 but velvet underground is his first documentary and this one premiered at the Cannes film festival and i remember it premiered and we were just like man like the critical acclaim for this movie is hot and heavy it's now streaming on Apple TV Plus. I don't know if it's playing in any theaters. Um, I know it is. Okay, playing at the theater where I work. That's oh, great. Where I saw okay, the film. so it's at some theaters. I wasn't sure about that, so that's great. Uh, I Doing, really uh, hope surprisingly people, well. I hope people watch this in theaters because yes, I recommend. It. Yeah, <laughs> I'll get into that. So, so Velvet Underground. This is a documentary that's like so you know like the stereotypical VHS behind the music any kind of documentary with like some talking heads, you sort of like go through like, this is the band's origins and like yada, yada boring. You've seen that this movie's not like, you get, that. uh, yeah. Like talking heads being like, it's not just a band. It's a revolution. Yeah, exactly. Like footage of like newscasters <laughs> being like this exciting new band called yeah, Velvet yeah. Underground. <laughs> and then you see some like Jay guy just being like, I just want to make music that expresses the feelings of what it's like in the world right now. And yeah, <laughs> Velvet yeah. Underground is very like true to the spirit of the band itself. It's very counterculture in that respect. It's unlike a lot of other documentaries. It very much feels like Todd Haynes watched other documentaries that are more cutting edge. He probably watched he's probably watched other Sundance documentaries, ones that kind of fly under the radar a bit. And he is looking at this band, the Velvet Underground, which is a short-lived band. They weren't around for a long time. Um, the people behind the Velvet Underground were honestly like artists who became more well-known after the fact. I mean, obviously much, yeah. there are songs and there are like musical keys from Velvet Underground that are hugely influential. I mean, heroin being the big one, I think. And like this, as you listen to this, like watching this movie is like an interactive album. I mean, you go through a lot of their music and you're like you hear it like you hear like wow like people really like were influenced by velvet underground but the names that you know you probably know better are andy warhol and who actually doesn't show up in this movie till kind of late in the game lou reed the big one and for me like i didn't know velvet underground before i knew lou reed i mean that's just kind of how it went for me at least john kale sterling morrison and hey, maureen tucker I, like these people 
like absolutely were very much clued into a specific downtown New York City music scene, which was like, gosh, like a conglomerate of art. Like I personally am so obsessed with this era, um, this sort of like New York City in the late 60s. And Will, you know this because I watch Mad Men. <laughs> Mad Men right. kind of gets into this zone. And uh, it's it's a fascinating place to start a documentary like this, I think. Yeah, I mean, I appreciate that, like, if you break down the structure of the movie, it doesn't really do, like, in terms of, like, how it approaches the story, it doesn't necessarily break that far off the mold. In terms of, like, we see the upbringing of the band, like, the, the individual stories. We see how they get together. We see their most iconic albums. We see their most famous collaborations. Then we see the fallout. Then we see the breakups. Then we see the decline of the band but like the execution by todd haynes is kind of like you're about to watch a normal documentary but then someone gives you an edible and you just kind of like your eyes go wide and you just kind of like get you know real in the music i guess in in a kind of metaphysical sort of way and it becomes uh yeah kind of more about the experience itself kind of like reliving how it would feel to be in the moment as opposed to just like going through the motions of the the uh typical documentary uh narrative structure i guess yeah because like the goal of a lot of documentaries is sometimes to learn something or to get larger context and you obviously get that in this but yeah it's it's more of like what you're saying it's more of like he's just trying to hammer in a spirit into you and i struggled with this movie a bit honestly like i'm watching this documentary and it's all over the place it's a lot of information and it doesn't have because there is a trade-off i think the more artistic you are the harder it honestly is to track this stuff it's a lot and it, it demands so much from you it demands your full and undivided attention which is a good thing but it, it also means that it's easy to miss things and if you don't know certain references this movie does not hold your hand at all and so you just sort of have to be like, oh, okay, I have no idea what just happened, but we're moving on to the next thing. It honestly reminded me yeah. on it, like, it's an extended MoMA exhibit. Like, have you ever been to the Museum of Modern Art in either, like, New York not, or... But I saw you compare it as such, and yeah, I, I get what you're saying. I don't think I necessarily agree, but I get what you're saying. I, that Well, that is, like, the atmosphere and the spirit of how I feel when I'm at MoMA, and I'm, like, going through, like, an exhibit, and I'm just absorbing, like, all of this stuff. And it's exciting and it's thrilling, but, like, for this, to do that for two hours... Because this is a two-hour movie. It's exhausting. I had to break this up because I couldn't do it in one sitting. I was tired, well, like, honestly. I mean, the obvious approach that I think Todd Haynes is going for is that he's trying to make it Warhol-esque. Like if somehow we're, if Andy Warhol is still alive and making a movie about Velvet Underground, like this is the approach you take. It, it definitely evokes uh, Chelsea's Girls in, in particular. I mean, uh, they even name-dropped Chelsea Girls at, at – uh, one point in the film and i think that's the the deliberate intention in terms of how it's executed doing the split screens doing the you know like kind of like the film bleeding into one another and the music kind of overpowering everything else and all that i think these are all very deliberate choices that todd haynes makes like i said i think 
for me, I, I don't think the big takeaway is that you're supposed to learn everything you need to know about Velvet Underground. For me, I feel like if you were to go up to Todd Haynes and be like, hey, I just don't really understand the full concept of like what was going on in the group, he'd just be like, well, then like just read Wikipedia. Like, why are you asking me? Like, he he's out to make a movie about the experience of what it was like to kind of like be Lou Reed and all these guys in yes. the moment and making a movie. And for me, I think that's more admirable than just making a talking heads documentary. Cause I mean, how many times we've we been on the show talking about like, it's so boring. The filmmakers just have people in a room talking behind like a blue screen, just being like, you know, this is important because I'm telling you, so here are 15 other people telling you that's also important. And then like one funny anecdote about it. True, just, But like, that's also in this movie. Like, let's be well, that's real. What I'm saying. Like it's, he's not going too far against the, he's not going completely against the green. Like he's doing that. That's what, that's what I was trying to say with my edible thing is that like, it feels like you're kind of watching a normal documentary, but you just happen to be under the influence of drugs. Uh, we're just you're hearing watching, voices yeah. come from nowhere. Right. And you're just sort right, of like, exactly. wait, what? Yeah, Who yeah. said that? Why? Right. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. That's what I mean. Yeah. It's exciting to watch. I mean, it's, it's, it's the sort of thing it, it, when I'm watching this documentary and all this stuff is happening and I, I appreciate the craft of it more so than I do the sort of like, because to me, I felt that experience in the first 45 minutes. But then once we get to like Sterling Morrison, Morrison, that's when it starts to lose me. I think with this movie, I what I appreciate about it is like, it's hard to do a Velvet Underground documentary. There's not a lot of footage of these guys. Like there's hardly any of them on stage. We barely see anything of them like together. So you have to be really creative in how you actually like bring this about. And I think this movie is missing a few moments or like a thesis statement for getting across how important Velvet Underground is. It sort of takes for granted how much music history you already know. And I'll admit, I'm not a music history expert. So like, if I'm floundering, that's not the biggest, like if you are a music expert, if you're somebody who really knows your stuff, you're probably not going to have these same issues that I am having. But I do think most people are not music historians. I have recommended this to a few people I know who I do think will get a lot out of this. And as I mentioned earlier, like watching it in a theater is probably best because when you're at home, it's so easy to be like, I just got to take a break. But if you're in the theater, I imagine it would probably be like Sparks, the Sparks Brothers, where you, you just let it happen. Like just sit there and get absorbed into it and everything yeah. else will work itself well, out. I do think Sparks Brothers the was more comprehensive because it felt like it had to go through that stuff. But I think with that movie, it's justified a little bit more because just like, we need to tell you all this information. Cause like he feels like most people don't know that about the band already. Whereas yeah, yeah. Velvet Underground, like you said at the time was fairly niche. And, and I guess in some respect it is somewhat niche, but I do think the people who are going to go see this movie know about uh, Velvet Underground. They know about like the, the the big strokes and all that, and I think that's fine. Like I think Todd Haynes knows his intended audience for this film, and he's playing to that strength. But I, I agree with you that like for someone like me who only has kind of just like a general idea of what uh, Velvet Underground was, just like knowing some of their more popular songs, but not knowing a lot about their their personal lives or how like their um, their influences as musicians were, you know. Uh, for the better or for worse in terms of like what they're trying to create with this band. I, I feel like there was something I was kind of disconnected from, but at the same time, as far as just like viewing experience, I was definitely taken by it just by, you know, kind of being immersed in this weird visual extravagance of it all. I like the kissing part. Well, yeah, that's uh, that's Andy Warhol. 
Yeah. I mean, yeah. I mean, I'm all for Andy Warhol. I mean, you know, as Pittsburgh native at heart, weirdly enough, um, when I went to go like where my car was parked is, uh, not too far, like where I dropped my car off to go see the movie. And then when I came back, it's not too far off from where Andy Warhol's grave is, uh, in Erie sort of way. Like I I actually passed it, uh, (laughs) going to work. That's uh, so cryptic. Yeah, you I've like never seen his grave. Kiss? Should... Like, what did you do? <laughs> like... I don't know. I've actually never been to the grave itself. I probably should. Huh. I mean, I'm yeah, so yeah. close to it. He's in, like, he's buried in my hometown. I mean, it's not, wow. uh, okay. um, that's not an exaggeration. Um, but yeah, I mean, yeah, it's, uh, he's a very big part of the city's culture and its art influence. And I, maybe that's why I'm a little bit more endeared to this movie than you are, but I can understand your complaints for sure. Yeah, I think. It- there's it's a lot of, like this movie is mostly archival footage and i just don't think it's perfectly executed in the sense that like all of the archival footage and all the voiceover and the the basics like the building blocks of what we see of this band coming together i just didn't find it always cohesive i think there you know i appreciate how artistic it is and sort of getting it across that like because a band like this sort of demands you be a bit more avant-garde that you have more of an auteur spirit but yeah i think despite the attempt that it, it has some shortcomings that trip me up along the way so the velvet underground it's not a man this is this is a, a tough recommend for me this is not something that i easily recommend to all people but my gosh if you if you're a fan of the 60s if you're a fan of counterculture and like digging into history in general and if you just kind of want to see something that's going to challenge you and provoke you like velvet underground is a must watch for sure but otherwise i don't know i, I, I don't know which like what viewers are going to watch this and really get so much out of it uh, compared to people who are going to watch it and be a little bit like, I can't deal with this right now. Yeah. I mean, it did kind of remind me a bit of the, uh, the Zappa documentary from last year in that, like, I think it is a movie where like, if, if someone wants to learn about the artist, I don't think like I wouldn't show them that Zappa documentary first. Like I'd probably show them a different one and then show them that one. And then I'd, I think the same would be true for this movie. Like I'd probably show them a different piece of footage or like different, uh, you know, reference points before I would show them this movie just so they have a better understanding of what they're, they're getting into. But I think for a movie that's deliberately meant to be for, you know, fans of the band, people who know most of this information already, but just want the experience of kind of reliving that moment in history and time and that art space. I think in that respect, it is effective. And I do think that Todd Haynes, like we said, I don't think he's really reinventing the wheel here, but I think it feels more peace with his filmography than I was expecting, given that, uh, you know, it's a music documentary and I wasn't quite sure what he was going to be doing here. But yeah, I mean, I don't think it's great. It's probably on the lower end of his films as far as the ones I've seen. But, you know, that, that doesn't make it bad or anything. It just, I think, I think he did what he needed to do with this. And uh, by and large, I think it works. Yeah, I mean, I maintain. I think it's, it's like an interactive album. And the music itself is awesome. Like, better, in my opinion, than the Zappa music. <laughs> uh, better than the Sparks music overall. And so if you get into this, just to sort of experience it and to listen to the music, just get into the music. I think if, if that's what you want to settle into, you should. So on that sense, I, I think we could find a lot of common ground. So that's Velvet Underground. What do you think the Rotten Tomatoes score is for this one? Um, hmm. I think it's going to be pretty high. I'm going to say 94%. 
you just keep getting better and better. 96, mm-hmm. you, were, you were within four points, then you were within three, <laughs> now you're within two. There you go. Impressive stuff. Audience score? Uh... Probably like 92%. 91%. You you are doing a gradation. (laughs) Now it's within one point. It's like you're doing it on purpose. Uh, Yeah, yeah. So 96% critics, 91% audience score. Very, very good stuff. Uh, And we should say the 96% critic score is out of 84 reviews. So yeah, vast majority of critics are like, this is the stuff. You got to check this out. Well, I mean, for Red to me, is that this means most of them are like, yeah, at the very least, they're just like, yeah, it's pretty good. Yeah, uh, yeah, you know, if not higher, obviously. I mean, I'm looking at this now. I'm seeing four out of five, three point five right. out of four. You know, they're pretty high scores. Yeah, they're not, you know, like middling positive from what I'm seeing. Uh, I even right. see like a ten out of ten. Yeah, it's pretty high, but uh, I can see why. I mean, it's hard to look at something this artistic and be like, this is not worthwhile. You know, for all of its challenging sure. subject matter and that, and in any sense you might assume. So that's Velvet Underground. Uh, as we mentioned before, it's now available to stream on Apple TV+. Plus. You can also find it in some theaters as of this past weekend. And that is our last movie review of the week. We got a lot done this past episode. Yeah. Long one. but This episode is almost as long as the last duel. <laughs> it is longer, just barely, than Velvet Underground. Mm-hmm. But... Next week, we also have a few films. Wow, we have a lot to get to. We have Ron's Gone Wrong. Is that going to be our feature? Isn't Dune our feature? <laughs> I'm just messing around. Yes, yeah. Dune is the big movie. I've already seen Dune. I hope I remember enough of it to have as detailed a conversation about it that I want to have. Because I do want to have a detailed conversation about Dune with you. Yeah. Soon. Uh, I hope they give out those t-shirts like, I made it all the way through Dune and all I got was this you know, sandy yeah. t-shirt or whatever. Yeah, yeah, this, I hope that, I don't think sandworm. Yeah. Yeah. All I got plush. was a sandworm t-shirt. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but Dune's not the only movie Ron's gone wrong. Is that animated 20th century studio or like Fox animation one? That's oh, that now Disney. Disney. Well, it's Disney okay. now, uh, but it wasn't originally. It's like a sci-fi kind of robot movie. I think where he's like, a robot uh, toy. Zach Galifianakis. I forget. I don't know. Somebody named Ron, Ron Burgundy, maybe. But yeah, there's that. There's that animated movie. And then we also have the French Dispatch, which hits limited this coming week. Not sure if we'll be able to catch French Dispatch in time. Um, I'm hoping uh, to get to a screening. It's not looking great. Yeah, it just depends on when we record, I actually guess. True. Yeah. True, yeah. So we might have to put off French Dispatch. We'll see. Uh, and then also Broadcast Signal Intrusion, which I, I already caught at Sundance. You watched half of it at Sundance. And yeah, I'll try to finish it. I mean, I liked what I saw from the first half. It was okay. I barely remember it, so I don't know if we'll be able to talk about it. I don't know if I'll be seeing Yeah, I guess like maybe more in the sense of like, yeah, I, th- I thought it was interesting. Maybe it doesn't eh. uh, go anywhere in the second half, but we'll see. It's... It's, it was fine. I, I I didn't have a strong reaction to it myself, but okay, you're not making fine. me very enthused to finish. I, know, this thing. <laughs> I feel bad, but you should make your own decisions. I don't know, but uh, yeah, that's what we have on deck for next week. Until then, don't forget to email us and say hi, cinemahawkspodcast at gmail dot com. All the stuff we mentioned earlier, and we'll be back next week from the Internet, California. I'm John Negroni, and from the Internet, Pennsylvania, I'm Washington. See you next time.